Episode 4. I find their illogic and foolish emotions a constant irritant. Then transfer out, freak! Come here to chew bubblegum and kick ass. And I'm all out of bubblegum. Cheap, lying, no good, rotten, four-flushing, low-life, snake-licking, dirt-eating, inbred, overstuffed, ignorant, blood-sucking, dog-kissing, brainless, dickless, hopeless, heartless, fat-ass, bug-eyed, stiff-legged, spotty-legged, and now, together by live simulation via the internet, Scott Gardner and Chris Honeywell. Blah, 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 blah. Hello and welcome to Two True Freaks. I'm your co-freak, as usual, Scott Gardner, and with me tonight is my co-freak, Chris Honeywell. Say hi, Chris. Hi, how you doing? <laughs> I'm doing good. So how you doing? What's uh, up with you? My beautiful, first off the line, Mac, iMac G5 is officially dead. Oh. Containing... All episodes up until this one of our show. Oh, don't say it. It's not the hard drive that died. The hard drive is intact. So obviously, <sighs> obviously, if they're listen, if if someone's listening this far, they've heard <laughs> yeah. the other episodes, so they still survived. But I've got a new computer on the way. Another another iMac G5, and they're transferring all my junk over onto that one. Bigger hard drive, bigger, faster, newer. So that's good. We the can rebuild it. You yeah. have the technology. Bad news is the money I paid for it, but I won't even get it. That's just too painful to even talk about. But uh, I'd, I'd sort I'd like to thank my roommate Trudy because I'm using her. Her she's got a Mac Mini G4, and um, it seems to be working just great. It seems <laughs> I got all the same. I just put up the same software, and off we go. So this this episode's thanks to my my roommate and her computer she just got she got a brand new iBook the day we took my computer in to, oh, wow. to be analyzed and pronounced dead on arrival <laughs> but uh yeah she's she's downstairs she's she's my roommate she's also my landlord she's did they hit it with the paddles did they do that whole clear oh, know, like shock the paddles oh it was so dramatic and painful and then they pulled the pulled the shroud over its head Made a little sign of the cross over it. Cry. Yeah. A little. <laughs> <laughs> I'm still crying. I'm gonna be just crying about, for months. Just about had me swung over from being a from being a PC guy to thinking about a Mac, and you know now. I'll tell you know. what. I'll tell you what though. The the problem with that Mac was uh, a design flaw. I I I literally bought the first model of iMac G4 the day it came out. The day that I like cashed in my 401k and said I'm gonna buy a computer. I went to the you know Mac.com or Macintosh.com or wherever they sell them 
and boom, that day it's coming out, and I said, you know what, I'm going to buy this because it doesn't get, for what I can afford, it's not going to get bigger, faster, better than this. So I got the very first one in the, the motherboard, basically. They call it a logic board at, at Mac because everything's different there, but just a little different. But um, they call it the logic board. It had a flaw in it. So after about two years, it would just die. It would give out. And they extended I I never bought any kind of extended warranty. So the first time it died, it was past any warranty I had. And they, they fixed it. Two more years passed dies again they fixed it for free both times because they put an extension in the warranty of everybody to make up for that design flaw each time it would have cost me like $900 so that was about $1800 savings and I would say the average person that bought one of those computers probably doesn't use it as hard and as much as I do mm -hmm. so um, they were probably going three or four years before theirs would die but um the, and uh, yeah, but other than that, it has never, you know, the, I never have problems with things crashing, viruses. I never end up waiting six hours as my disks get defragmented. It just. Yeah. Well, did I tell you about being on on the uh, on the uh, help thing on the help call for like three and a half hours the other night after doing the latest Windows automatic update? Thank you. Come again. Yeah, it did. It sounded like I was talking to somebody behind the counter at 7-Eleven the entire day. It pissed me off, man. I did the, it was an automatic update for Windows, right? And so it's one of those, you know, it takes forever to download, takes forever to install. And then after you're done, you know, you got to reboot the computer. Well, I waited all day to reboot the computer because I was in the middle of a lot of shit. But at the end of the day, you know, at night, you know, when everybody else has gone to bed and I just wanted to get on the internet for five minutes and check my mail, I do the reboot comes back up, I can't get on the internet. So then I'm on the help thing for like three and a half hours between both Bell South where I thought the problem was and then eventually with Windows because Bell South couldn't help me. Long story short, I mean, I was hotter than hell by the time I finally got off the phone with them and they couldn't help me. I ended up fixing my own problem and I was like, I was, God damn, I was pissed. I know, I used you know, to it's be like a... Every time I do a Windows update, it fucks something up on my computer. You know, and it's like, it's it's one of those things, it's like, what can you do? Do you just not do the updates anymore? Or, um, it, it's aggravating, I'm yeah, telling you. I used to be a PC guy too. I, under, <laughs> I understand fully. I mean, the beautiful thing about, like, that I loved about having a PC was I went to a computer show with my friend who was su a super techie nerd computer knows his stuff guy and told him what I wanted it to do and we went from booth to booth and put it together like a Frankenstein creation you know every piece was from a different place more or less and we'd get the biggest and best that I could afford and he put it all together for me and set it all up and that was cool, you know, because you could tailor make it. But I don't know if you, especially if you're doing video or music or anything, Mac seems to just be made, made to do that. You know, the the programs that are made for it and the the software is made for the mind of somebody, the person who's using it to create something, rather than like a computer programmer who's like, okay, it has to do this and this. So you have to think like a computer programmer to edit your video with a, mm -hmm. with a lot of PC programs where is on on the Mac 
iMovies is it's you know it's it's made for Joe Average in America and well you and I know about Joe Average in America they're not <laughs> the brightest people in the world they don't uh, know shit <clears throat> not that I'm a rocket scientist myself but, <laughs> you know I like I like to think of myself as a little bit ahead of the curve anyway Maybe keep I, thinking that yeah, I sure <laughs> will <laughs> maybe someday well, it'll happen you reading anything of interest at the moment? The last, uh, the last book I read was called um, what was it? Was it? Oh, it was Killer Crabs, <laughs> and it was terrible. A, a ten cent garage sale buy. I think it came out around the time Jaws did, and it was meant. It, it took me about about oh three trips to the crapper to finish it. I just set it right down next to the toilet. It's one of those books. So like, I'm not gonna spend my I'm not gonna spend my reading like reading time reading this book, even though it's like probably you know I spent a whole you know I don't know it was n not very long and it was just like a lot of semi pornographic scenes and a little bit of gore. Oh, it's just terrible, but. I was thinking, you know, it might be some parable for venereal diseases or something. There might be a subtext about, you know, venereal, especially with all the, the sweaty naked scenes in it, which were ridiculously written, too. You know, <laughs> they were the kind of things that, like, were, are meant to really get a, like, 10-year-old going, reading it, you know, reading oh, it going, enjoy oh, that's, oh, yeah, it's like, oh, this is what sex is like, huh? And it's, of course, nothing like reality. It's just this third-rate hack writer probably wrote it in 15 minutes <laughs> it was terrible but enjoyable i'm you know next maybe next time i'll write down some of the characters names that 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 says it all about the whole <laughs> book when you read the characters names and the description of them well what check this out I, I just read a really cool book um i, I gotta give some backstory to, to this book though um just before you get to the Florida border, maybe maybe five, ten exits before you get to Florida. Whenever we go down there to, to go down to Disney, um, there's this place, you know, you'll see signs for like 50 miles before you get to the exit. It's one of these big book warehouse things. You know, every book is $3 or something like that. You know, it's one of these just like massive old, you know, it used to be like a department store or something. Yes, and it's just piles of books. Yeah, just piles. And it's mostly shitty books. You uh -huh. know, it's a lot of romance and technical manuals that are like 20 years out of date and shit like that. But, you know, every once in a while you'll find a gem. A couple of years ago I picked up this book. It was... Uh, it was kind of like a what, where are they now book, and it covered the the twelve men that have that have walked on the moon, and like you know where are they now? Excellent, excellent book. I bought it for you know for I don't know a song. Anyway, so you know we always make a point to stop there. My wife is a is a voracious reader, and you know every once in a while I'll find something. So this last trip down there, I picked up um, two books. It was um, the second volume of a series called uh, Star Trek, The Eugenics Wars, The Rise and Fall of Khan Noonien Singh. But it was the second book. And then the other one was, basically it's the third one in the series, but it's got a different name, and it covers Khan's exile to that planet that he's, that he's found on in the beginning of Star Trek II. 
Right. So these these books have been sitting around forever on my shelves. I've been meaning to read them, but I, I could never track down the first book for cheap. You know, and it's when it comes to Star Trek books, I've been burned so many times that if I don't get them on the cheap, I don't bother to pick, pick right. them up. Well, I ended up finding the audio book for the first book online somewhere and downloaded it, and I listened to it, and it was really cool. And what I liked about it was, I mean, if, if you know enough about classic Trek, was all the little Easter eggs in it. Um, Gary Seven is is heavily involved in the story, which I thought was really, really cool. But also another character that was heavily involved in it was, do you remember the girl that became his assistant at the end of it was Roberta Lincoln? She was played by Terry Garr. Yes. Now, during part of this book... Oh, I remember Terry Garr. Yeah. Well, she sneaks into this, this installation, which, spoiler, is the installation that is responsible for the genetic experimentation that eventually produces Khan, right? Well, she goes undercover to get in there, and she's posing as like this geneticist. And the alias that she gives is Veronica Neary. Oh, that's does funny. That, does that mean anything? I mean, you know what it is, right? That is two that two thousand one. That is Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Yeah, yeah, that was the same role that that Terry Gar played in in uh, Close Encounters. I thought that was really cool. And the, the book is chock full of little. Little Easter eggs, little winks to you know to other things and stuff, and I really got a kick. I mean, it was a really good book. Now Gary Seven was involved a little bit more than I thought he was because he he starts out at the beginning of the book, and I really thought it was going to be just he's in there for a moment, and it, he's actually pretty much through the whole book and really tied very heavily to Khan, and. I don't know how how I really liked that. I mean, it was kind of neat, and it was kind of like eh, I don't know. Now they're kind of pushing my credibility limits, but it was still a really it was good enough that I wanted to go on to the next book. So I'm I'm, I'm about to start the second one and, and see how that goes. But it's written by Greg Cox, and he's written a lot of a lot of novelizations or not novelizations, but a lot of like Marvel prose books. You know, like Iron Man, and he uh-huh. wrote the he wrote the novel. Novelization of Fifty Two and the novelization of uh, I think he wrote Infinite Crisis and just some different things. I like his writing style, but the, these Star Trek books were really good, so I'm gonna I'm gonna continue with those. Well, Gary Seven was supposed to have his own TV series, it's uh, you know around right. then, but it never happened. So I think a lot of people sort of wish they you know are curious as to what that would have been like. So maybe the author wanted to sort of flesh that out. Actually, uh, John Byrne, um, if you remember him sure. um, from the comics, he's doing a Star Trek series right now. I can't remember the publisher. It might be IDW. And he's doing a series that's just a Gary – it's called Star Trek, but it is just a Gary Seven book. Haven't read it, but what I've looked at – you know, I kind of thumbed through the first issue, and it looked really – good. I mean, it looked like classic Byrne, and it, it looked really interesting. And Yeah, I like Gary. So he's very ro- well written in this con book that I just finished. I mean, it, it was it was very good. It was a very cool story. So I'm, I'm anxious to go on to the second and third and see if, you know, that I like you – know, if I like him and how it, how, it, how it carries forward. Um. I did have just a brief bit of news um, that I heard. It was It's more just a rumor at this point, but uh, rumor has it that I, I guess uh, Marvel or, or whoever the, the powers on high are behind the, uh, the recent um, Hulk movie uh-huh. have, uh, have scrapped plans to do any follow-ups. 
that I guess the movie, even though you know it's done well and they're calling it a success and everything, that I guess it didn't meet whatever the hell their their personal goals or whatever were for the movie to I guess to to be spun into a franchise or something. So the rumor at this, and I don't put a lot of a lot of stock in these rumor things that go around, you know, especially the ones that are like three and four years before a movie's ever ever even going to start shooting and, right. and they start releasing spoilers and attaching stars' names to them and shit like that. I don't. I usually ignore those. But this one just, it, it bothered me enough that I thought it worth mentioning that I, I hope this is just a bullshit rumor because I, I know I'm probably going to take some flack for this, but of all the big summer movies that I've seen so far, and I've seen all the ones I care to see so far except for WALL-E, I still haven't made it to that one yet. I heard it's really good. Yeah, too. I, I'm anxious to see it. But, you know, I saw, you know, I saw Iron Man, I saw Indiana Jones, I saw uh, Get Smart, I saw something else, I can't remember. Anyway, out of all those movies, The Hulk, I gotta say, was my favorite. I really, really liked it. You know, I know I'm going to take some pounding for that because everybody's holding up Iron Man as just, you know, the the summer movie. But, uh, you know, as much as I liked it, I was a little let down. It wasn't as big as the hype. You know, right. and I'm a I'm a long time Iron Man fan. I like Iron Man. I've got a hell of a run of Iron Man comics. Love the character, and I you know I'm not knocking the movie. I I enjoyed it. I was just you know I, I was just as much a geek in the audience as anybody else, but it still wasn't as good as as I had built it up to be. Whereas the Hulk, maybe it was just a simply a matter of I went in with extremely low expectations of that movie. And was just floored. I, I thought it was top notch. I really, really liked the Hulk movie, and it sucks if they're not going to do another one. I haven't, I haven't seen it yet. Maybe you know, just to just to speculate and to, to gossip, maybe it has something to do with Edward Norton. I could, uh, yeah, I could picture, that. I could picture the scenario that Edward Norton was like when they negotiated the movie. He said, "Okay, I'll do it," but he. Um, Maybe thought of the actor who played the Hulk in the last movie, who's gone, <laughs> and said, "Well, if there's sequels, I want to be. I want it in my contract that I'll be attached to the sequels." And the thing about um, the thing about Edward Norton is, I hear he's a very like. Well, he, I think he wrote the script to this, or co-wrote it, or but he gets very involved in the movie. If even if he's not, you know, directing it or whatever, he gets very involved and. In, uses his clout to make sure that his yeah. character does and says what he wants and you well, know there if he's was... not happy with a plot point he he'll get it changed. Yeah, and I there think... was some behind the scenes pissing match between him and Marvel over this movie. I didn't right. follow it. Maybe you they're know, trying I know to there... avoid that in the future. <laughs> yeah. That could very well be what it was that maybe he maybe he soured the thing or something. It, or maybe if... he Maybe he pulled the plug. I don't know. If it, if it, if it's a headache for the producers, and you know they may not be as inclined to finance the next one, or maybe they'll do that to try to to try to get rid of him, or so. Who knows? Who knows? I you know I I personally, if 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 one of them makes money, I mean, come on, the Fantastic Four had a sequel, and you know I haven't seen I I've I've seen neither of them so far, but. You know they got pretty, they got fairly negative reviews or lukewarm reviews, but I've heard they're both pretty good. And knowing but, you as well as I do, I actually think that you would have the same reaction 
I I had when I watched it. You know what? It's it's no it's no you know, Raiders of the Lost Ark, but as as simply a popcorn movie, I liked them both. I really did. You know uh-huh. they they well, yes they missed their mark. Yes they weren't you know great movies. They weren't even great Fantastic Four movies, but they were fun. I mean they were worth watching. Sure. And but the first one probably didn't make an awful lot of money, but it got a sequel. So the Hulk, you know, the Hulk got good reviews, and it. it so, so if it's if they're not going to make any more, there's got to be some reason because I, I know if I'm going to make money some... to make made on one. You know, there's probably money to make. Maybe they don't anticipate the popularity of comics movies going for more than a couple more years or whatever, but they're planning, you know? The Avengers movie is, what, 2010, 2011, something like that? Yeah, I'm super looking forward to that, too. I mean, that that I'm hoping it's going to... Even if it's not all that great, just the simple idea that, you know, comic characters have been teaming up in the comics for, what, since All-Star number three? You know, back in, what was that, late 30s, early 40s, something like that? You know, and and it's taken us how long to have a feature film where the where the heroes are going to team up? I mean, you know, it seems like they've been missing that boat for an awfully long time. So yeah. I, it's high time. And and Marvel really, you know, I'm an old DC boy, but still, Marvel to me that that does seem like the the no brainer. You know, I mean, those characters right from the get go have had a shared universe, and in a lot of ways, I think that's. A lot of people knock Spider-Man 3, and a lot of people have this this vague, undefinable sense of what was missing from Spider-Man 3. To me, I knew exactly what was missing. By the third Spider-Man movie, what was missing to me was that shared universe. You know, that, that uh-huh. sense of him not being the only superhero in his universe. Because, you know, I don't know if you've seen the, the third Spider-Man movie or not. Yes, but I it, have. In the original comics of that story, that whole black costume saga, sure. he seeks out Reed Richards of the Fantastic Four for his answers about what is this black suit. And they could have very well done that. Yeah, and and they by not doing that with the, with the movie, with you know, he just doesn't have the none of the characters. I don't, I, you know, I could be wrong, but to me, Marvel characters. Because we are so used to them in the comics having that shared universe that I don't think you can get a whole lot of mileage out of their individual movie franchises before right. you start to feel that sense of, man, something's missing, you know, and that something missing is, you know, Spider-Man not seeing the Baxter building when he's swinging around New York or not running into the thing or Captain America or, or, you know, that just that shared universe. And I, I'm so excited that, that Marvel's finally doing their own movies, creating their own think, franchise and, and that they're going to start having the share. I mean, that little, I think they had moment. to be more confident about the success of, cause the Spider-Man is like the Spider-Man is basically the Superman of Marvel. Yes. He's their big, I don't know if he's a big money maker anymore, but he wasn't the. He sort of defined Marvel. He sort of, you know, his character was was new when he came out. You know, it was a new idea, 
Yeah, he's the face of Marvel, the same as Mickey is the face of Disney right. or Superman is the face of DC. I mean, he's he's their icon. And Sam Raimi does the movies, and I think they end up being more Sam Raimi movies. And they were sort of the the leaders of of Marvel comic adaptions. You know, there'd been Marvel comic adaptions before Sam Raimi did it, but you know, they got a blockbuster director. You know, they got a good action fantasy director who has a really lively style and they put a lot of money into it and hired some you know hired good actors i mean as i mean as far as act, acting goes my favorite thing about spider-man is j jonah jameson the guy who plays yes. j jonah jameson is perfect he's, he's awesome yes he he's awesome just like in the for in the superman movies perry white was perfect he was perry white yep. and uh but I think Sam Raimi likes, you know, I don't think he wants to digress into the other superhero. He wants to keep it sort of in, it's in his universe too, you know. He's created his own little little thing by it, and I think they probably didn't do that. And by the time he got to Spider-Man 3, he was throwing so many elements into it at once to try to get all these things in it to make everybody happy, you know, with the black right. suit and everything, that to throw other superheroes in... Would it could it could have been really cheesy, you know? It could have been just sort of a a hacked on scene where it's like, oh, here's so and so. But they started doing that, I guess. With was it the Hulk? Or, what it was the Hulk, right? Where at the end of it. Um, well, it, it depends on your point of view, I guess, because technically it was Iron Man. Because Iron if you Man. stuck around, and this is a major spoiler if anybody doesn't know it. It's been um, out for a while by the time this I, gets I'm on. Hoping I'm not spoiling this for anybody. But yeah, at, at, if you stick around after the credits of Iron Man, um, Nick Fury shows up. Ah, uh, yeah, right. Recruit um, Tony Stark, Iron Man, into what he's called, I think he calls it the Avengers Initiative. And then, spoiler for the Hulk, although they spoiled it by showing it in the TV ads, which just made me do a dope slap to myself. I don't understand what the hell they did it for. But in certain commercials and certain markets um, for the Hulk movie, when it was playing in theaters, they showed it in the ads, the scene where Tony Stark shows up in Iron Man. Or, excuse me, in, in the, the Hulk. In Incredible Hulk, yes. So, yeah, supposedly they're going to keep doing these. And I've heard rumors. I, I still haven't seen it, so I don't know that it's really true. But supposedly there's a scene that was cut from the Hulk where he sees Captain America frozen in his block of ice in the Arctic. Oh, and that wow. was the scene that was cut from that movie because I think Cap – I could be wrong, but I think Cap is the next movie in, in, in the line for you know Avengers prequels per se. So I'm I'm excited about that. I mean, personally, I, I know that Captain America is a, a, a you know love him or, or hate him character for a lot of fans. You know, a lot of fans are kind of you know lukewarm to him the same way they are with Superman. They see him as you know too white bread, too goody goody, whatever. But personally, I love Captain America, and I I so badly want there to be a good Cap movie because I mean he's a character that really lends himself well. Oh, you didn't, to think be in the, a, you, you didn't think the TV show is great? You mean the old one where he was on the motorcycle and had <laughs> yeah, the clear... You know, when perfect. I was a kid, I thought that was the shit. You know, but then <laughs> it's, it's, it's one of those things where you grow up and you watch it again and you're like, it's you know terrible, what? I must, yeah. have been, I must have been 
brain damaged when I was a kid because this blows. It just well, when I was a kid. Standards. That, that, exactly. Well, there's a lot of things like that that you know when I was a kid, you know, I thought, oh, this was great, and then you know, I spent a lot of time in my adult life tracking these things down and watching them again, and then going, God damn, this is horrible. You know, like the the uh, what's her name, Kathy Lee Crosby, I think. Is she blonde, Kathy Lee Crosby? I think so. The Wonder Woman movie she did. Oh yeah. Was there was a Superman musical TV movie that was out like a couple of years before Superman the movie with Christopher Reeve? That I thought that was awesome. I've got that on tape somewhere, and it's fucking horrible. Um, there was a couple of lie. I think it was two. I don't know. Now I'm having trouble remembering, but there there was at least one live action. Super Friends show that not only is it horrible, it's like painful to watch. Uh huh. It's like incredibly, incredibly politically incorrect today. They've got a they've got a new hero they introduced called Ghetto Man. Oh. And I'll just yeah I'll just leave it at that. Yeah. Wow. There's, there's a lot. Really, the only thing that I've been able to track down like that that I held up is like. You know, like the like one of the icons of my childhood that I think does hold up is the the live action Shazam show, which I'll I'll, I'll talk about later when we get to our main topic, which we're actually probably we might as about well bring due. Back. Yeah. yeah, we might as Boy, well. That was uh, uh, that was a long way of getting to that, but yeah, our main <laughs> topic this episode is neglected movies and TV shows, and what we mean by that is. Movies that you may or may not have heard of them, you may have may not have seen them, but they're kind of, you know, either either we feel like they're off the beaten path or we feel like they just have never gotten their due or, you know, maybe, uh, you know, Leonard Malton and some of the so-called experts of movies have, uh, you know, have dogged these and we feel like they, they don't deserve to be dogged. So it's just basically... Uh, us pointing out some of our lesser favorites that we think deserve a second look. Yeah, and I, I sort of, um, when I was picking my list, I had a, I had to think about it a little bit because um, I tried to keep. Although there's, there's a couple in my, in my list of movies that you could consider cult movies, because cult movies sort of have a success of their own. They've been found by people. Okay. Like one of, one of my movies that I have is a cult movie. And it was it had its cult popularity time, but I think that sort of slipped away. I think it sort of disappeared. You know, people think of like Eraserhead and Rocky Horror Picture, but this this movie doesn't sort of make the list, and a, 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 another generation hasn't really been picking up on it. So I'll, uh, but and I, I tr I I tried to sort of split it between older movies that either got trashed or never heard of, and some movies that have been in the last few years that that. Maybe a couple of them, a bunch of them have been sort of major releases um, that got critically trashed, and, and one of them actually got good reviews, but it still it didn't make money, so it was sort of ignored by the public, and maybe it has a second life on, you know, some of these may have a second life on DVD, and that's sort of where I'm heading with those stuff that maybe you might want to look out for on DVD that... That sort of you passed over because they said it was bad, and and uh, my TV shows are uh, I only picked three, but I I picked three that I thought just sort of slipped between the cracks, and one of them is very popular, just not in America, and it should be, 
Well, and let's uh, we'll, uh, let's so we'll... take a break and stop teasing, and uh, and we'll start we'll start hitting them. All right, sounds good. Coming soon on Two True Freaks, we mock the critics and tell you what we really think about the new Batman Dark Knight movie. Watching the first dizzy, vertigous overhead shot of the glittering skyscrapers and minuscule streets, I literally forgot to breathe for a second or two found myself teetering forward in my seat. God, this is going to sound so nitpicky and so geeky. But the headpiece sucks. He's got a fat head. I mean, am I the only one that noticed that his head's... It's like a fucking bowling ball with bat ears. He's got a fat head. You know, the whole darkness thing is that, again, I've got to stress, I don't want Adam West back. But, you know, I mean, you like Batman, right? I mean, do you agree that Batman is cool, right? I mean, the Batman we grew up with in the comics and, and different medium, I mean, dark and brooding and his parents were murdered and he's got that whole dark aspect. But ultimately, I think the reason kids like Batman is Batman is cool. You know, I mean, he's a millionaire. He drives an awesome car. He flies a bat plane. He drives a bat boat. He's got a bat he swings around. Yeah, he's got a cave, man. He lives in a cave with a giant computer and, you know, all kinds of awesome toys and gadgets and, you know, just, he's cool. He wears a belt that's got gas bombs and batarangs and he's cool. There was no cool in this movie. There was no fun. There was no, yeah, it's got action out the ass, but does it have any moments where you go, oh, that's cool. I never once in this movie or the, the previous movie said, oh, that's cool. It was more like he's driving a, he's driving a tank okay hear all that and more on our upcoming batman has the bat jump the shark episode of two true freaks brought to you by dufo de Manzo. okay we're back from break and uh let's go ahead and get into this uh neglected movies and tv shows uh chris go ahead and start us off well um let's see i'll i'll uh i'll start in chronological order on mine and Movie number one in chronological order is Schlock from 1973. <laughs> also, if you're if you're hunting it down, if you're gonna hunt this movie down, it's either under the name Schlock or Banana Monster. It's almost more widely known as Banana Monster, but when I saw it for the first time, it was under its original name of Schlock. And I and I, I don't even think I know. I saw it with you. We were visiting your yes. aunt's house and watching some weird cable TV channel. Yep. And they did a whole day of bad, quote unquote, bad movies. And, you know, sandwiched between Attack of the Killer Tomatoes and, um, what was it? Atta uh, Revenge of the Monster? Or something, yeah, something like that. Bride of the Monster. It was, a, it was an Edward D. Wood movie. And a whole bunch of other terrible movies. Sandwiched in all of these was was a movie called Schlock. And uh, it was the first movie by director John Landis, who did the Blues Brothers, um, Animal House, a lot of a lot of classic comedies. And uh, Twilight Zone, the movie, which, you know, we talked about a couple, you have, a couple episodes you have this, ago. You have this movie? I, I finally got a copy of it off eBay. How did it hold up for you? Because, see, I've never seen it again since that first time we saw it as kids, so I'm wondering how it would hold up, because in my memory it was it was absolutely hysterical. Hilarious. Well, let me, let me put it this way. Some of the things we thought were funny as kids aren't as funny now, but there were also a lot of things that we probably didn't appreciate then 
that we would oh, now. Yeah. There's some great visual gags in it. For anybody who hasn't seen it, which is just about everybody, it's it's uh, black. It's black and white, and uh, I mean, it was his first movie. He had to raise money for it, and he was originally going to raise money to make a a porn a porn movie. <laughs> and uh, he'd gotten the money together, and he's like, "Okay, I'm going to make a porn movie." And then he found out in those days to I guess to make and distribute pornography basically it was run by the mob and he didn't want to have any dealings with the mob or get involved with that in any way so he rewrote the script I don't know what the script for the porn would have been but he rewrote it and took a new tack on it and out came schlock and uh, you know the stories of a prehistoric you know but they call him the banana monster but it's a guy in a gorilla suit and it's actually the director, John Landis, in a gorilla suit, in a great guy in a gorilla suit performance, I might add. And the gorilla suit was by future makeup, well, he was a makeup man at the time, but future big makeup man, Rick Baker. Oh, wow. Who, who's, as we all know, a master of the of the big monkey suit. You know, he's oh. he's done a, his share of, there was, um, of course, King Kong, and there was another great Rick Baker Gorilla, which was in, I can't remember the name of it, but it was something with Lily Tomlin in it. And, oh, uh, the Incredible Shrinking Woman. woman? Yeah. Did he also do the apes in um, um, Greystoke, The Legend of Tarzan? Yes. Another yeah. great. I'm 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 a connoisseur of monkeys. Movies. Well, those were done so well in that movie that the average person thought that they were real in, yeah. in Greystoke. That's how well they were done in that movie. And they were very well acted. Yeah, the the it was great. Well, this pa, Schlock is a completely different ape suit acting movie. It's you know it's ridiculous. You know, the gorilla rolls his eyes and reacts to the situation. Landis puts it, a lot of monkeys in his movies because didn't he also direct Kentucky Fried Movie and that has the part where the ape goes nuts on the news part in that movie. You know, I think you're right, and that's another great ape suit performance. That <laughs> yes. is an awesome ape suit performance in that. That is that's a great slow burn gorilla, you know, just starting out as a little agitated and getting madder and madder and madder till he wrecks the whole TV studio, and uh, yeah, no, Schlock holds up incredibly well. There's some, be- there's a beautiful scene where he plays piano with a blind with a, a I think it's a blind man, and there's a lot yes, of blind people because he falls so. in love with a blind girl too who thinks he's a dog, and uh, you know he's a He's a prehistoric banana monster that's, you know, thought out or been discovered and escaped. And, you know, there's bodies all over the place and banana peels. And it's just, you know, it's it, it's a precursor to the airplane movies, to the to the Kentucky Fried movie. You know, I don't think he did direct Kentucky Fried movie. I think Kentucky Fried movie might have been um, the guys from Airplane. It might have been an early... Because I want to say that John Landis is actually in that scene, in the background, but I, I, I I'd have to look it up. I honestly yeah. can't. Remember. But that, any, regardless, that one's worth a look too. That's a funny movie. Well, John Landis plays a great ape in this. He's he's just awesome. His his reactions, <laughs> and there's a beautiful visual gag where he, he's outside a warehouse and it's lit by two spotlights. You know, one on one end of the warehouse and one on the other. And he picks up a security guard and chucks him up into the air. And then there's probably a three, four, five second pause. And then someone tosses a dummy off the building on the other side. And you just see the body fall, (laughs) you know, 100, 200 feet away onto the ground in the other circle of light. And it's just, it's 
beautifully timed. It's just hilarious. Perfectly timed and shot. You could tell, you know, you can see the seeds of his his future in that movie. John and Landis. It, John Landis did direct Kentucky Fried Movie. Ah, okay. I just looked it up real quick while you were talking. Not yeah. sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but yeah. He oh, did that's direct. okay. But that's about that's about um that's about all I have to say about Schlocker Banana Monster. Besides, without ruining it, but you really should really should seek it out. It's uh it's hilarious. It's uh it's stupid at points, of course, and and uh you know it's very silly, but the 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 gags at work work really well. And I always find it interesting. I always love seeing directors' first movies or seeing, you know, seeing their first experiments with with film. Like I saw the um, the movie that um, Sam Raimi made before Evil Dead. You know, as they were barely teenagers when they made it. it I think it was called Alone in the Woods, and you know, it was sort of it had Bruce Campbell in it, and it was sort of a you know where they got the idea. Uh, you know, a 10 or 15 minute, I may, it may have been even longer, it may have been like 20 or 30 minutes version of, of Evil Dead shot on a shoestring budget, you know, I think with post-dub sound, you know, just a bunch of teenagers who'd been making their home movies moving up to the next level. And it's very interesting to watch. You can see all the elements that eventually evolved and that he figured out and fine-tuned and polished. I, and I love seeing that. And Schlock is a perfect example of this. So, uh, what, what do you movie, got first? What oh. movie am I? Th- I'm going to sideline you for just a second. What What movie am I thinking of? Where there's a guy that gets dressed up in, in an ape suit, and they end up like duct taping his mouth and everything, and they like he gets ship tra- him. Yeah, he's in like a shipping container. So he gets trapped in with a real ape that falls in love with him, and is mating with him. Yes. yes. Is that Trading Places? It, it's one of those movies. Yeah. And See, he I, also directed that one, so that's another one with a with an ape in it. And also, great ape. You know, when the when the other ape is mounting him from behind, it's just a close up of the ape eyes getting really yep. big. Yeah, his eyes know? get real big inside the ape. Yeah, I know. That's hilarious. God, I love uh, I love ape suits. I own my <laughs> own ape suit, by the way. Uh-oh. Just another just another adding on to the list of if since we call ourselves. Two true freaks. One of my life dreams was to own a decent ape suit. Not a, you know, I mean, a professional ape suit is a lot of money, but a higher grade Halloween costume ape suit, one that you could run around in and at least, you know, give. Some, if you came up behind somebody, give them a good scare. And I finally got one. I had a wonderful <laughs> girlfriend who bought me one for my birthday once. I think we're getting into TMI territory here, myself. <laughs> okay. Well. <laughs> Um, Nothing untoward ever happened in that ape, ape suit. Actually, I had a, I had another one, but uh, while you were talking about schlock and you mentioned you know movies that that we'd seen as kids that we didn't pick up some of the uh, some of the innuendos and things like that, I thought of one that definitely needed to make my list. So I'm I'm going to actually mention two real quick. Um, J Men Forever. Ah, Firesign Theater. Yes. Now this for anybody that hasn't seen this movie. If you remember the old serial movies of, of the 30s and 40s, you know, like The Adventures of Captain Marvel, um, The Rocket Man, Rocket Man, uh, oh, I'm blanking. Was wasn't Zombies of the Strat? Was that a? Yes, it was. Yeah, that Zombies was of the Stratus- Yeah, 
know, any of those serial plays, uh, chapter plays they were called, serial movies, whatever, they were movies that were originally released, and they'd run, what, 10, 15 minutes before sure. your main feature movie, and you would come back to the theater every week or whatever to catch the next one. They were, they were like like soap opera episodes before there was such a thing as soap opera. Anyway... They're all cliffhangers. That's where cliffhanger yeah, came cliffhanger. from. That's, yep, that's where the, the, the phrase came from. Um, J-Man Forever is literally a pieced together movie taking snippets and, and pieces of all of these classic serials stringing them together into one coherent movie and it's all redubbed to I mean absolutely hysterical results to where basically the plot is this guy and oh what's this I can't even remember the, the bad guy's name now I don't remember anyway, he's, it's, it's one of these you know he's gonna take over the world through rock and roll and it I mean it's just abs- you gotta just see the movie to appreciate it it's absolutely hysterical um, but the the highlight of the movie is any scene that has Captain Marvel in it because they they you know of course it's all redubbed and they call him the the caped madman. Yes. And there's a <laughs> part from the original. <laughs> he, they attempt to drop an engine, a car engine, on Captain Marvel. <laughs> the Captain Marvel, of course, you know he's Captain Marvel. He catches the engine. Now, granted, this is all from the original the original. Uh, Serial, so they didn't change any of the footage. They didn't. All they did was redub it. So he catches this engine block, heaves it back at the bad guy. <laughs> so there's, you know, there's a point where you see the bad guy get hit by this obviously, you know, cardboard or styrofoam or whatever it was engine block. Yeah, you know, but they redub it, and the guy's like, "Oh, you crushed my skull, you crazy bastard!" And you know, stuff. It's, it's just, it's a riot. It's absolutely hysterical. But the best, but the best line best is, yes. is, you know, not you know. Having seen it as kids, there's a lot of innuendos that you just don't catch. So, I mean, watching it as an adult, it, it was just that much funnier. It was one of those rare things that actually did hold up from, from our childhood. And, and gets that, better. It, it was better. Yeah, it was a lot better. Well, the Firesign Theater, I'm a big fan of their recorded stuff. Oh, yeah. They were one of the first comedy people that they would do these comedy albums that were plays more than anything but they were very abstract layered and layered with literature references pop culture references movie references they would they have they're great voice actors and they would follow one of them would play wc fields and they had the the old man voice and they would do parodies of the old like detective um dramas on the radio and they just became masters of the sort of old style radio play they're obviously very nostalgic mixed with you know modern cultural references and they did this one album uh uh that was set in the future and i think it's like in the in in the next world you're on your own and um no swearing in it okay nothing overtly sexual in it but just through innuendo and and puns it's almost pornographic and it also anticipated like the show Cops by about twenty years. It basically is like an episode of Cops. It's like the 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 whole story of the the whole sort of idea behind it is that there was you know that there's a TV show that follows police everywhere you know, and uh, but there the and 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 as another side note to um, J Men Forever, there's a movie called Hot Shorts. 
Yes. That's also just, it's the same thing, but they're all in 15-minute minute segments. I, I have and, that one. I, I like it, but I didn't find it to be near as funny as, as Jamin Forever. And, may, and I think it's because it is just shorts. It, it doesn't have the depth of, right. uh, of Jamin Forever. But yeah, I have that one too, and I, I thought it was really funny. But it's also good if you like. And if you like Fireside Theater on video, there's another one called Nick Danger in the Case of the Missing Eggs. That I that I highly recommend too, <laughs> and all their records. Well, that right. one was uh, that one was actually one I was just mentioning offhand because you had <laughs> talked about Schlock. It just put me in mind of that movie. My my actual and these are in for me. These are in no order. They were just as I thought them up. So they're not in any order chronological or whatever. But ironically, it is a, a, a comedy as well. I think it's the only comedy on my list. Um, this one's from 1993. It was called Coneheads, um, starring oh, yeah. um, Dan Aykroyd, um, Lorraine Newman. Kane. Well, actually, Lorraine Newman, um, even though she played the daughter in the SNL skits, she's really only get, just got a cameo in this movie. She's not the same. She's not the daughter in this movie. That's actually right. played by another actress. So I, I can't remember her name. But uh, I mean, if you're a fan of classic. Saturday Night Live, plus like the good '90s Saturday Night Live before it just became total shit. This movie is just chock full of great cameos from these these people and and just other you know comedians and and future comedic stars like uh, Michael Richards has a cameo, Sinbad's uh-huh. Phil Hartman, Adam Sandler, David Spade. Uh, Michael McKean's in it. I really like him, and he's not particularly funny in this, but he does play a really good part. Um, Drew Carey. Um, there's, I know there's a bunch of other ones I'm not thinking of, but and nobody I, had heard of a lot of them. But yeah, that exactly. Point. At that at that point, a lot of these guys weren't quite stars yet, or, or you know, a lot of people didn't know them. But uh, this movie, I don't know how it did when it came out at the theater, but I always got the feeling it didn't do as well as it should have because it is a very funny movie and i think I the forgot all about it was that you know the the classic conehead skits on saturday night live i mean by the time this movie came out that was what 20 years ago or better close to it yeah so i think a lot of people either didn't identify they didn't know well, what the hell's coneheads or all they remembered was you know the, the shoestring budget produced conehead shorts of Saturday Night Live and thought, well, how did they stretch that shit out into a two-hour movie? But I'm telling you, this movie, it, it's very funny. It's its heartwarming. You know, it's got a touching story. It's got really good special effects. And, I mean, it, it's just its entertaining. It's got a really good story. The basic premise, and I don't want to spoil anything, but the basic premise is pretty much the TV show. Um, Dan Aykroyd plays uh, uh, Beldar Conehead, and he and his wife Primat come to Earth on a surveying mission. They're they're coming to survey the Earth to be conquered by their race. Well, he and his wife crash at the beginning of the movie, and they're stranded on Earth for an indeterminate amount of time. So they have to attempt to blend into human society. So they disguise themselves as two, you know, uh, normal normal people from France. That you know, become, you know, just assimilate into into our culture, and I mean, it's just one hilarious, ridiculous situation after another. You know, Beldar works for a time as a cabbie in New York City, and just different, just really goofy scenarios. 
And uh, but it's it's really good. And and one of the 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 moments that I really like in this movie, and I can't tell you why. It's just it, it's just one of those like sci-fi meets real world absurd kind of moments is this great moment where it's you're lulled into the story and for a while you forget these are are aliens they're they're from another planet they're from another culture but their daughter having been born on earth doesn't speak like them she speaks like your average teenage girl and there's a part where Beldar gets a message, his people are coming for them. So after this girl has never been to their home planet, she was born on Earth. And Beldar says, you know, at last we're going to be rescued. We're going back to our planet. You know, the girl says something about, you know, uh, she gets mad at them and they have a big fight. And she says, that stupid star cruiser is never coming anyway. And, you know, here they're having this, like, normal suburban conversation in their living room, and all of a sudden she's talking about star cruisers. And it's just one of those moments that's like, whoa, you know, I don't, I can't explain it. It's just a feeling I get when I see that scene. It's, it's just really cool, you know, that, that they're like suburban aliens, you know. Yes, it's, I, it's, just, it's just surreal enough to be really cool. And, and the movie has a lot of little moments like that. And I, I remember I remember seeing it when it came out, and I had low expectations for it, and uh, I ended up liking it a lot. Mm-hmm. And and I ended up really liking the way they handled the home planet, the way the the home planet was. But I don't remember enough. I remember in the home planet at some point there was some visual gag where Beldar was bouncing around like a a pinball and a pinball table and bouncing off. And it was all shot in sort of sped up motion, and that's about all I remember. I don't I th- remember any of those cameos because I didn't know who those people were at the time. I think the part you're talking about is when he ba- he battles a monster that to me was very reminiscent of um, of uh, oh, I'm drawing a blank. What's the big monster in Return of the Jedi? The, uh, the Rancor. The Rancor, thank you. Yeah, he battles a monster that's very much like the Rancor, like, like a classic classic stop-motion Ray Harryhausen kind of monster that's kind of a cross between like uh, like one of the big monsters in, in Lord of the Rings and, and the Rancor from Return of the Jedi. But, I mean, you know, don't go in expecting Shakespeare, but, I mean, it, it's, it's just it's a very funny, very entertaining movie. It's got a good heartwarming message kind of thing, and, and it's just a good... It's a good little movie. I mean, it was an entertaining. If you like sci-fi and you like, and you like comedy, and especially if you like Dan Aykroyd, I mean, to me, this is one of his funniest movies. It's one of his best roles, and he he really, you know, he really plays the parts of the hill. It was. It's a good little movie, and it's uh, it's more or less family friendly. I mean, I don't know that you want to let the little little ones watch it. There's a couple sexual things, but I don't know that little kids would catch it. I've let, my, I've let my kids watch it, and, and they, they thought it was hysterical. They really got a kick out of it. All, so, right. all right, back to you. Okay, my next one is from 1975, and it was directed by L.Q. Jones, who um, played the role of Hank Kimball on one of my favorite TV sh- series, uh, Green Acres. <laughs> and he played a, a, an idiot, basically. Well, almost everybody in that show was an idiot, but he, he played one of the... He was just a little bit above the character of Ebb, so he played a really goofy role. But he's a really interesting director, and uh, the movie's A Boy and His Dog, which is considered a cult classic, but I think it's sort of fallen through the cracks of cult movies. I think there's been... 
you know, a few cult movies that have been elevated to the, the status of classic, you know, your David, David Lynch's Eraserhead and Rocky Horror Picture Show and Pink Floyd The Wall and people, you know, I, 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 I saw Pink Floyd The Wall at a midnight movie and, and, uh, and the Rocky Horror Picture Show with you, but that's another story altogether. Um, <laughs> that was that's the, that's we should go into that at a whole show of the phenomena. That, that could be a whole show. Yeah, that's definitely one from another for another time. And that's it's not what people up. expect. But um, a Boy and His Dog is a first first acting role, at least the first major acting role, as far as I know, for Don Johnson. An actor that I never really had any, you know, I was never, I, I watched a little Miami Vice in the 80s when I was a kid, but never really had whatever, you know, he was just another sort of Hasselhoff character, but he's great in A Boy and His Dog. It's a post, I, I'm a sucker for the post-apocalyptic, and this is a post-apocalyptic story of, um, uh, you know, a guy surviving in a, and basically a sort of, it's a precursor to Mad Max, it's a very desert world it's a post nuclear nuclear world nuclear if you're if you're <laughs> pronouncing it like a moron um and uh he has a dog that he has a psychic bond with and i think the backstory it was it's based on a book by harlan ellison a great science fiction writer like the classic bitter cynical science fiction writer who writes great evil stories you know and wrote probably one of the best episodes of Star Trek, The City on the Edge of Forever, at least hailed as one of the the classic episodes. And it's based on one of his books. And I guess the backstory was in, in the government at some point had uh, bred dogs for battle that could psychically talk to their masters, and he's got the ancestor of one of these dogs. And basically he finds food. He, he He's the brawn and the dog sniffs out food and girls for for Don Johnson and uh, it really on the limited budget it had it really paints the post-apocalyptic world really well and he ends up meeting a girl and going into a an underground world where that uh, called Topeka where they've preserved life as it was sort of pictured to be in the in the 50s in the Midwest and uh I don't want to spoil anything for anybody. I only ever saw this movie one time, so correct me if I'm wrong, but is this not the one where he's basically the last guy and he comes across like a like a city of women that want to fuck him to death or something like that? To some extent, I think yes, it's, 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 it's not that he's the last guy, but he is not sterile. <laughs> he's maybe the first guy okay. they find that they, okay. they're sending girls out to find guys that as sperm do and and they bring him down and they're like well you you know all the men here are sterile so we need someone to repopulate the place and he says oh this is great <laughs> and uh but then they end up basically hooking him up to a milking machine <laughs> that's right that's <laughs> and, uh, okay. and he's that's like right. i'm out of here <laughs> that's and i i won't give a, the the ending of the movie is one of the darkest twists followed up by a great punchline I can't remember. Yeah, I, I, and uh, I, I don't want to give it away because it just makes the movie. And if you know it, you've probably already seen it or know about the movie. But it's really worth seeing the movie just for the punchline at the end. It's so dark and funny, and just a very, very well-made movie. It anticipated a lot of uh, 
Yeah, it came from Harlan Ellison, so it anticipated a lot of things that came into the into the sort of horror science fiction. You know, there's mutants in it. There's glowing mutant people that howl, and um, it definitely was an inspiration for the Road Warrior. You know, it has that same sort of medieval mixed with the remnants of you know people putting together things from the scraps of uh of what is left of you know probably pretty much our time you know cuz whatever happened it happened in the near future then which was in 1975 so there's you know gutted out cars and stuff they go to see the uh, they go to the movies at one point and you know all the movies they have are these old porno strips so you see all these like clips of but they filmed all the movies cuz i guess the director is in one of them so they and uh, you see all these, you know, ninth-rate, you know, porno movies that are, you know, and they're showing the scenes that aren't the porn in them. They're showing the dialogue scenes, and then they're all, <laughs> the film is all scratched up and skipping, and, oh, it's beautiful. It's just a, one of the first post-apocalyptic movies I saw that that really, like, was completely immersed you in the world, you know, until I saw The Road Warrior. And, you know, the same sort of thing, where they really capture the feel of the whole world. Don Johnson's great. The dog in this movie is unbelievable. The finest dog actor ever put into a movie. Um, <laughs> they were going to do a sequel, but the dog died. And they, and they wisely didn't do it. And what they did was um, they trained the dog to respond to Don Johnson's visual cues and verbal cues instead of because what I hate whenever I see a dog in a movie doing things this takes me out of the movie every time because I know how the stupid dog trainers work with these stupid Hollywood dog trained a movie with a trained dog in it the dog is always looking off screen past the actor that it's interacting with to its trainer who's doing hand signals and telling it, okay, sit, get up and walk over here. So you're watching the dog watch somebody and and do and it always looks false to me. It never looks like a real natural dog. Some people get some dogs with a little charisma in the movies like uh um uh like in the um in the mask where the dog becomes a, an integral character. But right. that dog was still looking off screen. Well, in this movie, just that simple thing, which I don't know why anybody has it figured out to do it again. So when Don Johnson talks to the dog, the dog looks up into his face. And when they dub over, you know, the mental conversation between them, and and the dog, the, the, he'll be talking and they'll argue, and the dog will look away from him in anger. And, and when I, I got this movie finally on DVD, and it had... Uh, commentary over it and the commentary I, I highly recommend getting the DVD the, the, the commentary is so awesome there's there's one point where the director's talking about the dog and he's you can hear the tears welling up at it he's like this dog was the greatest actor this this goddamn dog was just so so <laughs> good you know I mean he he actually had an, the dog was Oscar nominated and, but didn't win and should have won. It's the greatest animal performance of all time. It's it's just wonderful. And he's a perfect shag. He's a shaggy, ratty-looking dog. It's just a beautiful, beautiful movie. <laughs> all so, right. uh, what what? How, how are we doing on time? Okay. 
we're I think we're ready to to end the segment and get ready to start the next one. Okay. All right, we'll be right back. Sometimes a superhero comes along who is so iconic, so majestic, that only the finest of musical composers can compose his theme music. And sometimes you get superheroes that get this. Aquaman Aquaman No one greater than Aquaman King of Atlantis King of the sea Where the danger is That's where he'll be Always defending you Yeah, you and me Aquaman I'm sorry, Chris, were you going to say something? Oh, I just started to say we're back too, man, but go, <laughs> you, you go ahead. I was just going to say, before we get back into this, a couple quick things. Uh, I'm, I'm going to try to tighten it up a little bit because I, I know that we're running a little bit long on these and we've got a bunch of them to get through. But uh, I'd like some feedback from our listeners. You know, Please feel free to uh, to email us, um, uh, twotruefreaks at gmail.com. That's T-W-O, uh, truefreaks at... Uh, gmail.com let us know what you think of our running time are we running a little long or you know do you like the big long episodes we did run a poll before we got started with the show 
on how long we wanted to try to run and everything. And, and it was all over the map, really. Yep. It was hard to tell exactly what people prefer. So I, I'd really like some feedback on that. Do you, do you like how, you know, how we're doing? You know, do you think we're a couple of windbags? You know, whatever. Um, and also, I apologize if I'm not exactly at the top of my game tonight. I have got a fucking headache that would kill a lesser man. So uh, nice. I apologize. But uh, anyway, jumping back into this, um, my next one, and, and you'll notice a pattern in my movies probably. I'm, I'm really, you know, of course, you know, it's the nature of our show. But I'm really sci-fi heavy. I'm also very superhero heavy in my list. But uh, hopefully you guys like that sort of thing. Um, my next one that I'm going to mention is one that I really feel that a lot of people skipped and, and really is an excellent movie that deserves much more attention than it got. Um, this is going back to 1994. This is The Shadow with uh, Alec Baldwin, yep. um, Penelope Ann Miller. She plays Margot Lane, um, a pre-Magneto Ian McKellen. Um, Tim Curry is one of the pseudo bad guy. He's not the main bad guy. Um, there's a, a sort of a cameo st- sort of role by Jonathan Winters. Um, I I loved this movie, and I'm really sh- shocked that it, it just didn't get more recognition. I think the problem with this movie, it was in that that period post the first Batman movie, you know, the the first yes. Tim Burton Batman movie. Where by the time this movie had had come out, we'd been inundated with superhero. You know, there was Batman, there was the the Turtles, there was the Flash on TV. There was, I mean, there was a slew of superhero movies. You know, not to mention things like RoboCop. Just, just there was a ton of movies like this. And I think not only did this movie get get lost in that shuffle, I think people were getting kind of burned out on the genre. And I think there was a major who the hell is the shadow factor? Right, he came you know, from a different era. And yeah, exactly. It was exactly. mostly a radio character. He yeah. had some movies and serials and stuff, but it was a long time yeah. ago. So he was a classic pulp character from the '30s. You know, a, a pre-comic book character that you know the old folks knew who he was. But I think a lot of people of our generation, and I say our generation, Chris and I being forty that just didn't know who the hell he was. You know, didn't identify with... Now, I knew the character. I was introduced to the character through the very, very excellent um, DC Comics four-issue miniseries done by Howard Chaikins somewhere... Where was that, Chris? In the mid-'80s, late-'80s? Mid-'80s, yeah. yeah. Excellent, excellent. If you've never read it, go out right now. Stop listening to us. Go find these four issues and read it. It's fucking great. It's Dark Knight Watchmen level great. Great series. As a matter of fact, I'm looking at it right now. I just picked up the original promo poster for this, and I have it. I just got it framed. It's gorgeous. It's that. I don't know if you've ever seen it, Chris. It's the one. It's 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 uh, Chaken's shadow standing against a brick wall with a wanted poster of the shadow, and it just says. He's back, and God help the guilty. I love that poster. I saw it at one of my first comic conventions, and I've wanted it all my life, and I finally tracked it down for a me. It was like five bucks. Anyway, back to this movie. I- I'm I'm not going to go on and on about it. Just simply to say, watch it. If you if you like superhero movies, if you like period piece movies, this mo- this movie does take place in the 30s. Um, it's great. Uh, a couple things that I really think make it great, besides you know. Alec Baldwin is a damn good shadow. Um, Penelope Ann Miller's nice on the eyes. Um, 
Peter Boyle, who, if you don't recognize the name, he was Ray's father on Everybody Loves Raymond. He's the the Shadow's personal chauffeur and cabbie. Uh, he he's just he's just a bit character, but he's really cool in it. Uh, another this is totally worth the price of of downloading or renting this movie. For all you people that hated the character of Neelix on Star Trek Voyager, and rightfully so because he sucked. Um, <laughs> The actor is in this movie in a bit role as a museum security guard, and the main villain of the movie uses his telepathy on him to make him kill himself, which was something that I wish they'd brought him on to Voyager to do. So that right there is worth watching. <laughs> no, nothing against the actor who played Neelix. I, at the moment, his name escapes me, but that character sucked. I know because I'm watching Voyager at the moment. So anyway, um, yeah, great movie. Um, if you like Jerry Goldsmith... Um, the composer, Jerry Goldsmith, this is one of his top-notch scores. Just a really fun movie. You know, it's not deep, but it, it's a, it's just a good, you know, superhero-style movie. It, right up there with, uh, oh, I don't know, you know, the, the, the good superhero. You know, there's not a whole lot of good superhero movies, but this one's right up there with them. I, I enjoyed it, too, and it got some critical acclaim when it came out, but it just it didn't catch on to people. Yep. My next one's sort of the same thing. Uh, well, my, my next one may be on your list, too, because mm-hmm. I know it's a favorite of both of ours, and I know the the critics trashed it when it came out, but it was it's filled with so much talent. It ha- it was directed by uh, the late Robert Altman, who's... Oh, I know where you're going. He created M.A.S.H. Created M.A.S.H. Um, I know where you're going. Starring... Robin Williams and the first role that people were like, "Oh, Robin Williams is losing it." Um, Shelley Duvall, Paul Dooley, Ray Walston is poop deck pappy. Yes, I'm talking about Popeye. What am I? I'm not a fan of musicals. Me either. And I'm not even really a big Popeye fan, to tell you the truth. Much I like the like old Popeye cartoons, and. Not so much, um, and the, the original comic strips are, are, are pretty good for those, that old style. Interesting enough, E.C. Seeger, who, um, wrote the original Popeye, is listed as a screenwriter on this, along with Jules yes. Pfeiffer. Yes. Now, Jules Pfeiffer, for anybody that doesn't know, huge, huge comics and comic strips fan, wrote a number of books whose names escape me at the moment, but yeah, anybody, uh... He was a that, cartoonist, uh, also. Yeah, he, he, anybody who was really into comics should know the name Jules Pfeiffer. He was a big name. He was kind of the, he was kind of the E. Nelson Bridwell of like comic strips. I mean, just a uh, just a legend. And uh, so it was just loaded with Harry Nielsen, uh, the so- another late. I think he's he's dead. Songwriter he's, who was he was friends with John Lennon. Um, uh, he had a band called Nielsen, and. Um, he was just acknowledged. I, th- I think he dro- died of a drug overdose or something. But he was just known as being a very good songwriter, and they got him to write the songs for this, which are weird, simple songs. They're great. They're they're very well written, very witty. It's like you said. I mean, off. I you know, I'll go you one further. I will come right out and say I fucking hate musicals. There's a, there's only like two or three musicals off the top of my head that I can think of that I can even sit through. That being like The Wizard of Oz, just because that's a damn good movie. It's a classic. Uh, 
I finally did sit through Mary Poppins and was amazed to find out that it actually is a great movie, even uh-huh. though I hate musicals. This one, and don't laugh, but the only other one that comes to mind would be uh, the original animated version of, uh, of Charlotte's Web. Oh, other yes. than that, I hate musicals. And the fact that I love this movie so much really shocks me. I, I didn't put this one on my list only because this was one of the few movies I knew was going to be on your list. I, I love this movie. And uh, I'll let you I'll let you talk about it. Um, the only other thing I wanted to say about this is when you watch this, especially if you've seen it, if, if you're seeing it for the first time, anytime Robin Williams talks, crank your volume up because he says the funniest shit under his breath. Uh-huh. And it's one of those things where you got to either turn it up or you got to watch this movie over and over to pick yep. up all the little subtle things he says, the little subtle things in the background. This is one of those movies for people that like to watch movies over and over to pick up levels of depth. Because this movie was really written off as a shadow, goofy, like you said, just a, you know, Robin Thanks. Williams. Yeah, just a Robin Williams, you know, collecting a paycheck. It's so much more than that. It really is. Well, Robert Altman is the king of, of realistic overlapping dialogue. Three or four characters ca- talking at once like real life. If, if, if there's a busy scene, it's, MASH is a great example, you know. People are talking over each other. And it's the same in this. Although their dialogue is a lot goof, is not set in the real world. It's set in the Popeye world, which is so bizarre. It's the Popeye world. It's the, the town of Sweet Haven. And, and, uh, but the dialogue still, it's overlapping. Everybody's doing their thing in the background. So there's eight or ten people crisscrossing, and everybody's doing something. Robert Altman's a big fan of letting his actors improvise a lot. And, and Robin Williams is a born improviser, and he was at the top of his game there. My favorite line is where she she introduce Olive Oil introduces herself Shelley Shelley Duvall in the role of her lifetime. <laughs> I mean, she was meant she to play Olive was Oil, or to play Olive Oil. Uh huh. And uh, she, you know, she introduces herself as Olive Oil as he walks away. He goes, Rrr, "Sounds like some kind of lubricants." My just, favorite line is the part where she's sneaking away or something. I forget the scene now, but anyway, he surprises her. Or no, maybe she surprises him. I forget. Maybe they surprise you. Anyway, she goes, you scared the life out of me. And he goes, yeah, I almost knocked him out of you too. But he <laughs> says it real quiet. It's hilarious because he just about, you know, he's got those huge, huge, funny cartoon arms and he just about cold cocked her in that scene and it's just hysterical. Ray Ray Walston is poop deck pappy is is perfect, and uh, Paul Dooley, one of my favorite character actors, is is just wonderful. Is is um, wimpy. I wondered who he was. Yeah, he's, I didn't recognize that name. He's he he. I first, he looked straight out of the strips too. Yeah, and he had the he had the body language and everything. He's a great character actor. I first saw the first movie I saw him in was uh, Breaking Away, and he played the father in Breaking Away, and was just just a great natural actor. Um, but yeah, Popeye, you know, it's it's kind of uh, I wouldn't say a popular. It's a well known movie. People know it exists, but just I think the general consensus is is that it's awful, and it's not. It's, it's not. I just picked. I picked Although, it up at a garage sale for fifty cents the other day. 
50 cent movie. On Although I will say the one bad thing I will say about this movie is it suffers badly from Star Trek five syndrome, which is it falls completely apart at the end. It, well, it really doesn't have an ending and it does suffer from that. But well, other they, than that, there's a reason for that. They ran out of money. Yeah. And, and it looks and like, the, and the giant octopus that they made to, to, for him to fight in the end of the movie turned out looking terrible. But you know what? You know, I, I, years later, I ended up seeing the original um, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, you know, the old Disney movie from the 50s. Yeah. And, and it almost plays like an homage to that. And, yes. it, and it makes it that much funnier to me when I see it. I don't mind the big rubber octopus. It, it's just the fact that it it, well, it they, just feels like a movie where they didn't know how to end it. You know what I they, mean? They, they ran out of money, and then they and a lot of what they shot they couldn't use, and they couldn't reshoot. So he had to just sort of, he just sort of had to re-edit it into, and it just ends quickly. It's a sort of biff, bam, boom. It's over, which is sort of how the cartoons end too. But in a movie, it didn't work as well. You could tell something went wrong in the very last ten minutes, the final battle of it something just goes wrong in it up until that point though it's just it's a well-oiled machine you know it just yeah. moves along every every like um location is a great set piece with the at the races and in the restaurant and it, the, the love, engagement party and love or hate musicals you, you'll you'll find yourself humming along to some of them days later like the food 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 songs i love that song and so, again this is from somebody who hates musicals at, at, when we go out of this break i'm gonna put in the 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 harry nielsen i've got a recording of harry nielsen figuring out the songs and doing little demos of it and you could tell he's sitting in a room singing the food song I'll put it on the I'll put it on the end so everybody can see it. So, I want to hear that. It's a beautiful. Once I get my once I get my new computer, I can uh, I can send it to you. It's sitting sitting on my brand new computer oh, in the shop I... right now. Yeah. What what the fuck? Did you get that message that came up? No. It just... we got cut off, and then I got a thing that came up from Skype saying, rate the quality of your last call. <laughs> <laughs> That's weird. Are we still recording? Uh, yeah, we're still. I just left a recording because we ended at the end of, like, a line. It ended at okay. the end of the line, so we, okay, can, cool. we can just... Uh... So anyway, I'll, I'll, I'll put that song up at, at the end of this segment, and uh, it should... Uh... And you can hear just what a wonderful, witty, simple, little, great song. And profound. It's profound in its in simplicity and wit. <laughs> and what do you have next? I have one that is going to make half the listeners out there do a spit take, I swear to God. But I'm sincere in loving this movie. And, and this is probably the mo most dogged movie on my list. And you're, you're probably going to even make fun of me for it. But it is... Uh, from 1981, I believe, um, it's called The Legend of the Lone Ranger. Uh -huh. This is one of the most dogged movies in history, I think. But you know, I I like this movie. I've always I saw this movie. Uh, you know, when we were kids and had HBO. And I don't know. I I haven't had HBO in a long time. Maybe it's still the same. But they would get some movie. 
and just run the living hell right out of it. Yep. And this was one of those movies that seemed like it was always on when I was a kid. And I'm telling you, every it, it's another one like Jaws and, and certain other movies that every time it's on, despite the fact that I've seen it a million times, I'll find myself sitting down and watching it no matter what point of the movie it's in. I like this movie, and I've never understood what the hell the deal is. Now, maybe it's just a simple fact of, of I'm not particularly big on, or at least I wasn't when I was a kid. I wasn't real big on westerns. I was more the, you know, the sci-fi guy. You know, I like spaceships and robots and shit. So I wasn't ever big on westerns like my dad was. But it, it, you know, it brought to a western. A, a comic book thing because it was basically you know the Lone Ranger for anybody who doesn't know the Lone Ranger is essentially Batman of the Old West you know his his family was murdered and he becomes the masked Avenger you know to go out and 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 avenge the death of his family basically anybody who is now reading the I believe it's Dynamite comics that's putting it out. There's a Lone Ranger series out in the comics right now that's getting a lot of critical acclaim, and deservedly so. I've got the first six, seven issues, and it's a really good series. And I think it's just simply called The Lone Ranger. If you've read that origin story that's in Dynamite Comics coming out right now, it is this movie. It's exactly this movie. It's the same damn story. It's it's even got the modernization, because the first three, four episodes of the old... Lone Ranger TV show told this story. It's the Lone Ranger's origin story, which is basically, as a kid, his parents are killed. So he goes, he's rescued by Tonto as a as a as a boy. He and Tonto are both boys. So Tonto takes him in. He lives at Tonto's. I don't know if it's a village or a reservation. I forget. But anyway, where the Indians live, until his brother, who's much older than him, he's an adult, comes to get him. And um, later on, John, the guy who would eventually become the Lone Ranger, goes back to Texas to meet up with his brother. And something happens, and they end up going out. His brother's a ranger, so he ends up going out with his brother and the Texas Ranger on the trail of the Butch, Butch Cavendish gang. They're led into this canyon and into an ambush. And everybody except John is killed at this ambush. Well, John is laying there dying, and Tonto happens across the scene of this massacre, and he recognizes John from their childhood. So he saves him, he takes him, and he nurses him back to health and everything. And when John is recovered, he realizes that everybody believes that he and all of the rangers were killed. So he and Tano go back and they bury everybody and he digs a grave for his own self and he is, assumes this masked identity so that no one will know who he is and that he was a survivor of this massacre and he becomes the lone Texas ranger. He, he's a, he assumes that mantle of a lone ranger and he and Tonto then go out to get Cavendish and avenge his brother's death. That's the main point of the story, but also they end up involving a plot where Cavendish is going to kidnap President Ulysses S. Grant, who's 
masterfully played in this movie, I think, by Jason Robards, who ironically, many years later, Jason Robards would provide the voice of Ulysses S. Grant in the Ken Burns Civil War uh, document. He was also so, in A Boy and His Dog. Oh, was he? Yep. <laughs> he's, he's in a lot of. He's in another one of my favorite movies, which is Raise the Titanic, which didn't made my list because it hasn't hold, held up well over the years. But I like Jason Robards in that movie. Anyway, you know, again, this is not. You know, it's not Gone with the Wind. Or Star Trek II or Raiders of the Lost Ark, but it's a damn entertaining movie. It's a good Western. It's a good superhero movie. Um, Christopher Lloyd plays Butch Cavendish. It's one of his very first, if not his first, film roles. He's adequate as the villain. Ironically, the guy who plays his right-hand man, who plays the evil sheriff, he and Christopher Lloyd would wind up many years later in a movie together, Back to the Future 3 where set Chris Lloyd... Yeah, exactly, set in the Old West. And Chris Lloyd was, of course, uh, Doc Brown, and the evil sheriff plays the bartender of the bar in the town in Back to the Future. Yeah, I wish I knew that actor's name. I have no idea what his name is. But anyway, uh, Legend of the Lone Ranger, I-, I think it's a damn entertaining movie. I think the two things that hurt this movie when it came out was that it wasn't... Correct me if you know, Chris. Is the is the classic Lone Ranger? Is his name Clayton Moore? Clayton Moore. He he Clayton. objected strongly. Yes. And and the the people that made this movie shot themselves right in the foot by waging a campaign against Clayton Moore. They 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 filed a cease and desist order where he could no longer appear in public as the Lone Ranger. And basically what they did was they alienated their fan base before the movie even came out so that anybody that had identification with the classic Lone Ranger, you know, they were pissed going in. So, you know, they weren't going to like the movie from the get-go. There was that and the other thing that works against this movie, this movie is so, so badly in need of a rescoring. It's scored by John Barry, who I really like. You know, John Barry has done um, Dances with Wolves, one of his greatest scores. He did Raise the Titanic, Somewhere in Time, um, the movie that's used at the beginning of our show, uh, The Black Hole. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of a lot of big Hollywood movies. But the problem is, throughout this movie is a running, sung commentary by. Oh my God! Now I'm gonna blank and can't remember the guy's name. Oh, it's a. Oh shit! What is the guy's name? I am totally. Is it Merle Haggard? Oh, I love Merle Haggard. No, no, you won't love him in this. It's that. It's it's a song called "The Man in the Mask," but it's sung like a like a comment like a monologue. I don't know what you like a narration. Yes. Through the whole friggin'. Uh, I mean. Every time there's a scene where somebody's not talking, this asshole's singing narration, and it's really fucking annoying. And if they would take that out and rescore those parts, or just leave them without a score, this movie would improve by 110. percent That's really those are that's really my only problem with it. Other than that, I think it's a I think it's an entertaining movie. It's got one of the best. Um, stunts ever performed in a, in a movie, and I'm, I've always wondered if it was really meant to happen the way it happened, or if it was an accident. But there's a, a part where there's a runaway stagecoach at the beginning of the movie. A guy 
No, no, granted, this stagecoach is going full tilt. It's got six or eight horses, and they're hauling ass, right? They're really running. This guy comes up on a horse alongside them, jumps from his horse onto the horses pulling the stagecoach, and I guess what he was supposed to do was stop the horses. Right. Now, I don't know if, I don't know if this was meant to happen or if it was a horrible accident, but he ends up underneath the the thing that hold I don't know what it's called but the thing that holds all the horses together yes, he's I going remember. hand over hand kind of like Indiana Jones style trying to get back to the stagecoach well he ends up getting trampled and rolling under the horses and under the carriage and out the back and it's one of these stunts where you go like oh shit that hurt you know and and he looks he looks dead when it's over but that's all real I mean it, it, yeah. that's happened and they left it in the movie so again i don't know if it was meant to happen or if it was a bad accident but they left it in the movie <laughs> and it's cool i mean it's it's one of the coolest parts that and uh i mean you know if you, if you like just you know superhero style action the part where uh where they're gonna hang tonto and the lone ranger comes to the rescue i'm telling you you know if that doesn't get your blood pumping as a as a as a pure action superhero moment you know, then then you're listening to the wrong podcast. <laughs> All right, back to you. All right, my next one is I'm ba- I'm up into the modern my modern movies, and uh, that that have come out, and it's uh, Idiocracy by Mike Judge, who did Office Space, and he created Beavis and Butthead, yeah. and King of the Hill. This movie came out in 2006, and it was basically buried. I don't know if they if they just thought it was a bad movie or if it struck a little too close to home but it just did not did not get very much release it didn't get any publicity at all yeah you got to tell me about that i've never even heard of this and i love beavis and uh, office i love office space that's a damn good movie i think this this it's a different kind of office space was a very after beavis and butthead i expected office space to be kind of crude or like maybe a little ruder, but it was a very sort of, I don't want to say it was a nice movie, but it was a very mellow mo- movie, and the, the comedy was I thought it was, was Dilbert with, with some edge is what it was. Uh-huh, and it was very good, but it wasn't in, you know, it wasn't, after, after Beavis and Butthead, you didn't expect it, and I thought I was very pleasantly surprised. This one's more of a grand comedy, and it's set 500 years in the future, and it, and it concerns a guy who's, pretty much he's in the army and he's just a slacker he's not too bright he's not flat out stupid but he's just kind of a little dumb around the edges and he volunteers for an experiment where they're going to freeze him for a couple days for like five days and put him into suspended animation and they also this for some reason a hooker who is played by uh maya rudolph i think from saturday night live is also the other volunteer so they put him in the chamber and then they forget about him and 500 years pass and there's a beautiful beautiful visual gag about that shows the passage of time and this movie starts out with narration too about how you know over the course of time all the intelligent people were not reproducing yet the stupid people were reproducing (laughs) at an amazing rate (laughs) and by the by 500 years the smart people had just built enough of an automatic infrastructure that people 
could be real. I mean, the world is dumb. Every inch of everything is covered with a corporate logo and an ad. And the number one TV show is called Ow My Balls. <laughs> and, uh, I gotta see this movie. And all anybody ever drinks is like energy drinks. It, like all, all the, um, um, you know, uh, water dispenser, you know, uh, a water fountain dispenses like green energy drink. Brondo! You know, the, the drink you crave and everybody drinks Brondo and, uh, and that you know they and basically they're starving out because they can't figure out that they that you put water on plants instead of brondo so it's like brondo the drink plants crave so they're they're irrigating all their crops with energy drink you know Gatorade looking stuff and basically i think it's um Starbucks is you go to Starbucks you get coffee and hand jobs and uh, everybody, basically everybody just sits in their house in this giant lounge chair with a toilet seat in it, with a giant TV screen with about 50 different stupid shows. And You know they- what? As much as I love Star Trek and The Terminator and Logan's Run and shit like that, this sounds like the truest projection of the future that I've ever heard. Well, here's the thing. It's set 500 years in the future. I think they're being optimistic. <laughs> Yeah, it sounds like 50 years in the oh, future. Oh, yeah. Well, there's just piles. There's mile-high piles of garbage. Everybody, It's just garbage everywhere because everybody just tosses their garbage. It's um, it's hilarious. I highly recommend it. I don't want to give too much up about it. But oh, it, don't, it, it has I, a lot of great actors get who get movie. to play dumb. You know, they get to play dumb. Everybody's dumb. The president of the United States is a black... He's a black wrestler slash porn star as the president, you know, and he's sort of James Brown like like a James Brown wrestler and his cabinet is one of the just great collections of every different kind of idiot that you could ever think of. And everybody's just you know, they're jaw dropping, mouth open, fly catching idiots. It's great. Give the name of this movie again? Idiocracy. Idiocracy. I, I'm gonna have to hunt this one down. It's on. It's on DVD. It's it's easy to find on DVD. It's sort of getting a sort of revival now that it's on DVD and more people are seeing it. But everybody should see it. It's a great and it's a it's a great sort of political commentary without being like Republican or Democrat. It's just sort of straight on. This is how stupid will be. You know, the politics in it are mostly about just how how stupid people are. I love it. <laughs> I love it. It's hilarious. It's got a lot of just what Costco has become when you see Costco in the future. It's highly recommend it. Well, I think we're about ready for another break. Well, before we do that, I just wanted to throw out a quick uh, uh, honorable mention here. You you were talking about Popeye, and I meant to throw Uh this out while we were talking about Popeye um, on the subject of Robin Williams. I'm not going to go into it because uh, I covered it in depth in our uh, Steven Spielberg episode. But uh, Hook is another uh, uh, Robin Williams movie. If you haven't ever seen it, you know, great movie, well worth a look. And kids love, especially little boys, love that movie. So that one's definitely worth uh, a second look, too. And uh, with that, let's go to break. All right. We'll be right back. Thank you. 
Everything is food, food, food. Everything is go, cat, go. Everything is food for thought. Everything you know, know, know. fucking coffee's running right through. Hang on, I'm going to go piss again. Real, okay. Just real fast. I'll be right back. While Scott pisses, I'm just going to pause to say that uh, I created everything on this show. I've written it from day one, every bit of dialogue, including Scott's. It was my idea. First thing. I called him up and put it by him and you know, he readily agreed. I've been doing all the research, all the uh, all the recording and editing. And I just want everybody to know who should get credit for all this. Anyway, he should be back from pissing pretty soon. I appreciate nobody mentioning this. It's kind of a sticky subject with the two of us. All right. Hey, how you doing? Saying something? Oh, I was just goofing around. Oh, okay. Yeah, I got one of those large iced coffees from McDonald's with dinner tonight, and it's uh, it like makes me piss every two seconds. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, okay. I'll, you want me to start it out? Yeah, go ahead. You just did. You just did the last one, right? Yeah. All right. All right. We're back, and uh, 
My next movie is a, a Korean movie called The Host. It did I do a, the last one? What was the last movie we did? Was it The Lone Ranger? Oh, okay. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, wait. Actually, no. Maybe we should start again because then we did Idiocracy, so maybe it's yours. <laughs> I can't re- It doesn't matter. I can't right. remember. You going to start over again? All right. We're back. I think I think it's your turn next. <laughs> I'm sorry. I got the giggles now. <clears throat> Okay, my next movie, and I, I'm going to go real fast through this one because everybody knows what movie it is, but it's a certain it's a certain thing about it. Um, Star Trek, the motion picture. And I know a lot of people are like, Ugh, Star Trek 1, that movie sucks. Well, not only don't I think Star Trek, the motion picture sucks, it may be one of my favorite one of the, of the whole franchise. But regardless, I want you to go out and see. If you think the first one sucks, rent, buy, borrow, whatever... Star Trek The Motion Picture, the director's cut. It's a two-disc set that they released a couple years back. This is this movie is everything that George Lucas's special edition Star Wars movies should have been. He could take some serious notes from this movie. What they did with this movie was the director, Robert Wise, you know, classic director. He did uh, The Day the Earth Stood Still, um, The Sound of Music... Um, a bunch of other movies I'm forgetting off the top of my head. He sat down with basically the the team of guys that he could pull back together that that produced the original theatrical Star Trek the Motion Picture. He got a bunch of computer nerds together, you know, for special effects and stuff. And he basically went back in, fixed, touched up, edited, um, and and, and improved upon Star Trek the motion picture. And, and again, I say that this movie, the reason I, I make the George Lucas comparison, beyond the obvious fact that this is one that they went back in and put computer effects in, I, you know, the George Lucas special editions of Star Wars drive me absolutely batshit fucking crazy. Because I don't care if you've, if you've seen them a million times or if this is your first time seeing them, those computer effects especially in the first Star Wars movie, Star Wars Episode Four, the new stuff in that jump out and slap you right in the face. Uh, Chris, do you agree with me on that? Oh, yeah. I mean, they, they... don't they don't blend. They, most of them look like shit. Most of them jump right out and scream computer effects, but, but worse than anything, they don't blend with the 1977 footage. They just don't. I mean, they... They, you, they you... jam the flow of the movie, too. They, they, exactly. They take it out of its flow. This does not do that. Everything in Star Trek The Motion Picture, the director's cut, everything works. Now, this is a movie that I have literally, literally seen at least, at least a hundred times. I I really like this movie, and I've seen it over and over again. I've seen the original theatrical cut, I've seen the extended version, I've seen several bootleg versions. I know this movie backwards and forwards. Yet, when I sat and watched the director's cut, there were a lot of little things, a little, lot of little changes, and several inserts of things like into the backgrounds and stuff. I literally didn't catch them, or I, I caught them and I kept thinking, is that new? Was that there before? I, I, I couldn't remember. And it was just little things. You know, there's a scene in uh, when Kirk, Spock, and McCoy 
really speak to each other for the first time. They they have a meeting and it's I don't know if it's on the wreck deck or it's in the captain's office or it's somewhere, but there's a there's a window behind them. And they added in the nacelles of the Enterprise. So you're basically looking out the back window of the Enterprise, looking out like at, at the engineering section and the nacelles. And it it's so seamless that I kept looking at that going, is that new? Or did I just not really pay attention? You know, it, I just couldn't remember. It's it's just, it works. It blends. There's another scene toward the end of the movie, you know, where they go out on the saucer section of the ship and they're going to, they're, you know, they're preparing to actually walk off the Enterprise to V'ger where this bridge of like cube things comes floating and materializing out of nowhere. All of that is new, yet they perfectly captured the feel of a 1970s special effect to where even though it's new and even though it's done on a computer, it, it blends. It looks just like it was done in the 70s. Everything in the movie is like that. Um, the ending of the movie is much more of a payoff. You know, when the Voyager cloud dissipates, in the original versions of this movie... They never show you a shit. They tell you that the cloud dissipates, but then you never see anything. Even at the end when right. when when Decker and Ilea merge into the new life form and they go off to new dimensions and all that shit, and Vidra basically derezes, you never see anything. You know, it's just this fuzzy light show and then all of a sudden the Enterprise comes drifting out of a out of a, you know, backlight. In this, you see Voyager, uh, Voyager, Voyager. See how huge this vessel is. You see this weird alien hybrid machine thing. But again, it blends. It it doesn't pull you out of the movie. It doesn't feel like a big CG effect. It it looks like a seventies Trek movie, and it I mean it just works. And it's so much better movie. They cut out a lot of. A lot of just the awestruck, you know, Sulu and them on the bridge looking at V'ger for miles and miles. And, you know, just all that dumbstruck stuff. They cut a lot of that out. They cut out a lot of extraneous dialogue. They basically, they shortened it. They tightened it. They jazzed some things up. They cut some things out. It just works a hell of a lot better. And, and it's a great movie. And... I mean, I've always been a big fan of this movie anyway. I've always felt like Star Trek The Motion Picture is unappreciated. And, and the biggest reason I always felt that way was that, you know, people bitched that it didn't have any action and all that sort of thing. But, you know, to me, Gene Roddenberry had a certain vision for Star Trek. He had a certain ideal. And the only two times I feel like that vision really shone through exactly what he wanted was Star Trek the motion picture and the first season of Star Trek uh, The Next Generation. Yes. And beyond that, the show was either out of his control and he had to fight with somebody else or he was just out of it by that point. You know, being, you know, either either he'd gone on to something else or he, you know, he eventually he died. But Star Trek The Motion Picture, love it or hate it, is Roddenberry's vision. And, you know, especially if you read the book. Now, he wrote the book. Uh, to my knowledge, it's the only Star Trek novel he ever wrote. He wrote the novelization of, of Star Trek The Motion Picture. And I'm telling you, it's, it's 
it's scene for scene, the movie. So love it or hate it, it is his vision. And that's what I like about it. It's it's literally that's Gene Roddenberry's Star Trek. And, and I like that. I, I think it's a damn good movie. I'm I'm definitely going to look that one up. I, th- I think you'll I like it. I haven't seen it yet. I haven't seen it. I, I actually was just reading the photo novel of Star Trek oh, The Motion yeah. Picture the other day. Um, my next one's comes from Korea, from South Korea. It's called The Host, and it was out in 2006. Maybe 2007 in America, because it got it got a limited release in America. It's out on DVD now, and it got a got good reviews because it's a really good giant monster movie. It's a a CG monster, and they, you could tell the technology. It was big budget for South Korea, but the CG technology isn't quite up to par of ours. But the skill of the director, he makes this creature work better than most, you know, CG budgets that are twice what he had. Because he, it's not all about the CG. He works it into the background. It just, it flows very well. And the reveal for this monster is one of the all-time best giant monster reveals of all time. It's worth the whole whole price of admission to the movie or rental through Netflix or what, however you're going to do it. But uh, it's got a lot of weird, the, uh, the Asian sort of movie dynamics of a family. It's a very dysfunctional family. So there's like family drama going on too in addition to the action. And the twists and turns that are taken in it are just incredible. You know, it, it's very unexpected twists and turns, which you see in a lot of these Asian movies and the way the characters react to each other. It's very strange, but it's entertaining through and through, and the, the monster is is great. That's about all I, I want to give away about it, but uh, <laughs> I, I, I recommend seeing it. Um, it, it gives you it definitely uh, the director is a fan of American movies, so you're sort of seeing the American giant monster action movie which is funny because the American giant monster action movie was created from the Japanese <laughs> giant monster action movies which probably got their cue from King Kong so it's sort of this back and forth between the Asian world and and us with giant monsters I will have to look into that more in, into the future into the connection between that so uh, what do you got next? You know, I, I swear to God to our listeners that we didn't sync up our list. I don't know what's on your list. You don't know about mine. And it's weird. You're talking about monsters. That's exactly the next one I was going to cover. I'm going to cheat, and I'm going to throw out three movies, but only because I'm going to run them in quick succession. Okay. Which is basically, um, you know, my my pick for my, my favorite Tell Me a Scary Story movie my favorite pick for my favorite Dracula movie and my favorite pick for my favorite Frankenstein movie. So real oh, quick, so real quick, just, you know, just because we happen to be in the same genre, um, my pick for favorite ghost story, favorite, uh, tell me a scary story movie is, um, from 1980. This is a movie. It might be a little hard to track down. And I don't think a lot of people have heard of this movie. It's called the changeling. Oh, George C. Scott, George C. Scott, Damn good, oh, scary creepy. movie. Don't watch this movie by yourself late at night. Um, I don't want to give much of it away because it's basically if I tell you anything about it, it's going to ruin the movie. But 
There is a seance scene in this movie that will scare the piss right out of you. Um, they're holding a seance. And George C. Scott is very skeptical. He knows something's happening in this house, and he thinks basically someone's someone's messing put, with him. Yeah, someone's someone's messing with him. Someone's trying to scare him off or play with him or whatever. And he's a very no nonsense, real world guy. So they bring in at a, at a friend's insistence, they bring in a medium, which he doesn't believe in, and she's talking. And doing the seance and asking questions, you know, how did you die? You know, did you die in this house? Why are you still in this house? Nothing's happening. She's doing automatic writing at the same time, and they're recording this entire session. The session goes a little out of control, but nothing ever happens. You know, other than, you know, she she gets deep into her trance, and, and she finally snaps out of it very distraught. The seance is over. Everyone leaves. George C. Scott is left alone in the house, and he's pretty pissed. He feels like he's really being taken for a ride. So he's sitting there all alone you know, by himself in this creepy dark house, and he decides to replay the tape of the seance. Mm -hmm. Suddenly, there's answers to all of the questions that she asked during the seance. And it will creep you the hell out. And that's all I'm going to say. This is a damn good scare me movie. It's it's not gory. It's not violent. It's just a good ghost story. Um, of note, um, besides Dorsey Scott, there's not really any stars, anybody big. But uh, classic sci-fi fans will, will probably re recognize the name John Colic. Uh, it's either Colicos or... Or Colicos, I'm not sure how you pronounce his last name. Um, Star Trek fans will remember him. He was Captain Kor in uh, Star Trek, and he came back to play the role a couple of times in Star Trek Deep Space Nine. He was also the original Baltar on the original Battlestar Galactica TV show. Um, my next one, my pick for my favorite um, Dracula movie... Um, is simply called Dracula. This was, I think, this was out in about '78. I'm not sure about the year it came out. With Frank starts, Langella. Stars Frank Langella, exactly. Um, for the younger listeners out there, they'll probably only know Frank Langella because he played Perry White in Superman Returns. But he's a damn good Dracula. I think he had played Dracula in broad, on Broadway or something. I think you're right. Doing this. Just an excellent, excellent movie. John Williams score. Um, doing kind of a kind of aping his own Empire Strikes Back. Dracula's theme sounds a hell of a lot like like Boba Fett's theme in this movie, but it's just really good. It's the classic Dracula story. It's got a couple of twists, but Frank Langella just really pull. He looks like Dracula. He looks like like Marvel Comics version of Dracula to me. He really pulls it off. Very entertaining movie. It's got uh. Help me out, Chris. Who's Van Helsing in this movie? Classic actor. I can't remember. Oh, he's he's huge. He's a huge acting legend. I cannot think of his... It was one of his last, if not his last movie, and I am totally blanking on his name. Um, it's on the tip oh, of my tongue, actually. Damn, yeah. I'm looking it up just as fast as I can here, because I cannot think of his name. Lawrence Olivier, Sir Lawrence, yes, Sir Lawrence Olivier. Olivier, yes. Plays Professor Van Helsing. Um, Donald Pleasance, who's been in a zillion horror movies, he's in it. 
Um, I can't think of any other real big name stars, but it's just it's just good. If you like Dracula movies, if you like vampire movies, this one's very faithful to the legend. It's just a really good Dracula movie, and, I, and I'm going to leave it at that rather than, than go on and on about it. Um, my last one, this one's going way, way back, but this is my very favorite. I like Frankenstein. I like the classic universal monster movies, you know, like Dracula, Frankenstein, the Wolfman, the Gill Man, you know, all those kind of movies. And there's been a zillion uh, Frankenstein and and Dracula movies, and I, I think a lot of them are, you know, a lot of them are shit, really. You know, there's been so many, and it's been retold so many times. But this one really stands out to me for Frankenstein. This is going way back to 1957. This is a Hammer film. Um, for anybody that doesn't know what a Hammer film is, Hammer films basically were after the Universal franchise kind of folded and, and went out of style. There, there was another franchise called the Hammer franchise, which basically dug up all the old Universal monsters, gave them a little more edge in the 70s. They were, they were a little harsher. They were a little scarier. They were a little more gory. And they were just a, a fresher approach, you know, to that. It was like a grim and gritty phase for the, for the classic Universal monsters. Anyway, this one's Curse of Frankenstein, 1957. It stars uh, Peter Cushing... You know, who you'll remember was Grand Moff Tarkin in Star Wars Episode Four, And Christopher Lee plays the creature, the, 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 the monster. And Christopher Lee, of course, was Dracula in a lot of those old Hammer films. Um, younger listeners will know him as both Count Dooku in the Star Wars prequel trilogy. And he was also, um, what's his name, Saruman in... Yes. Uh, Yes. Lord of the Rings. Yeah. Lord of the Rings. And uh, just this is just an excellent movie. It, it is dated. The dialogue can be a little cheesy, but but stick with it. It's got a good payoff. It's got one of the better. It's not exactly faithful to Shelley's telling so much as it's in the spirit of her book. But Peter Cushing in this one, I believe he played Baron Frankenstein many times. But this is probably the best one he ever did. He he's. He's really cool because he's not your typical mad scientist. He's not the whole, blah, ha, ha, I'm going to take over the world. He's more of just a, he's obsessed and he's kind of lost his objectivity. He doesn't realize what a, what a complete ghoul he's turning into. And there's a really awesome and really creepy ass scene where he brings this, this respected foreign like genius, like a like a Albert Einstein type of guy to his home, and he brings him in, and the guy, you know, he's this sweet old gentleman. He's like a like a Albert Einstein kind of. He's a sweet old guy. He's like this super genius, and Frankenstein brings him in, and you know, he's complimenting him how you know how much he really admires him, and and all that. And and there's a scene where they walk upstairs after a meal and, and the Baron's showing him to his room and everything. And, and the, the, the old guy comments how nice it is to be accepted and brought in. And he really appreciates it. You know, he doesn't have any family and he's such an old man. And, and, and Frankenstein says, well, I want you to stand right here, professor. I I have a picture I want to show you. And he, and he backs him up against the banister and he's showing him this picture. And it's just a random thing on the wall and it's all a setup. And suddenly Frankenstein pushes him 
over the banister and he shouts out something like, watch your step, professor, something to, you know, cover what he's doing. And he kills the guy. And you feel horrible. You're just like, oh, my God, you know, how could he do that to this? You know, what the, why is he doing that? He needs his brain. He, he, his brain. That's all it's about. He, he, he needs his brain for his monster. And it's stuff like that that just it's 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 a level of creepy because he has totally lost it. He doesn't realize how how much he's more of a monster than the eventual monster because he's just he's so obsessed with playing God. He's lost touch with with his morals and and, and with his objectivity. And uh, and that's really all I've got to say on it. It's, it's well worth a viewing. I mean, if you like this kind of movie, if you like the classic monsters, it, it's a damn good movie. Um, my next one is, it says it's from 2006, but I think it came out in 2007. It's called uh, Southland Tales, and it was directed by Richard Kelly, who did um, Donnie Darko before that, which was sort of an underground hit. And this movie, he got a bigger budget, bigger, big cast. The Rock is basically the star of the movie. It gives a great performance in it. And it's another apocalyptic movie. Very weird. Lots of characters intersecting. Concerning, and it concerns a large corporation and prophecy and the end of the world and religious cults and underground groups all sort of circling around The Rock and uh, Justin Timberlake is in it and is very good. Uh, John Lovitz plays an assassin in it, and he's usually comedic, and he plays a very serious, sort of creepy role in this and does a really good job. There's a lot of Saturday Night Live and Mad TV actors popping up in it. And this movie just got drubbed by the critics, and I think the big problem was it, it got a major release and a lot of hype. But the story depended on you reading these three comic books that came out ahead. They gave a lot of background to it that makes it make a lot more sense. And uh, and just the average, you know, they're making this big budget movie and they're trying to make it into a hit. But the average moviegoer isn't going to go out and buy these three comics on an independent or smaller comic label and or even know about them, you know. There was, you know, maybe they did a release of it and made sure it got into Walden books and stuff like that. But the, the average moviegoer, even the person who may have seen Donnie Darko, probably isn't going to know about these comics. So it didn't, people wrote it off as a big, a big um, mess where he tried to bite off more than he could chew. But I really, I, I, I saw the movie before I read the comic books, and the comic books made a lot more sense. But I could sort of follow it. It, uh has a very tangled story and it concerns time travel and a drug that the military gives people that that screws up their perception of reality and uh, it it has all these intersecting stories with a a group of rebels that are trying to bring down this corporation and this corporation that's launching their giant blimp it's it's very good and there's you know there's characters who are split in two a la Kirk and the enemy within <laughs> and uh, you know characters with memory loss and it's it's very abstract weird has some very funny just sort of on their own lines you know comedic lines I I really enjoyed it all the way through it you know it had me um, had me pretty much mesmerized all the way through but I don't think it really got the the, the appreciation that it should it may, maybe it'll take years for people to really figure it out and and um, 
and get behind it. But I think it'll stand the test of time. I think you'll hear people referring to it and, and watching it and appreciating it more in the future. And, cool. Uh, what do you got next? Um, I'm not sure how we're doing on time, so I'm gonna. I, I've bumped a couple of my things to honorable mentions that that I'll, I'll run through real quick at the end of the show. Um, my next one is one I really feel passionately about, and, and I, I really want to make sure to to give it a shout out. I was listening to a podcast recently, and I can't remember which one it was, but they mentioned this movie franchise I'm going to talk about. And they basically dismissed it after the first one as shit, that, that none of the sequels are worth watching, that, that basically watch the first one, the rest of them suck, and, and why did they ever make any sequels? And I, I just want to take you know some objection to that. The movie I'm going to talk about is Escape from the Planet of the Apes. Ah. I like this movie. Oh, yeah. This this is um in the in the ape movies this is the third one of the set there there were originally I believe five movies there was the you know of course the original one with Charlton Heston there was uh, Beneath the Planet of the Apes then this one this is the third Escape and then there was Conquest of the Planet of the Apes and Battle for the Battle Planet Battle for of the Apes. yep I will I will go on record and say there is no sense to watch the fourth and fifth. I think they stink. I, I don't really think they have any redeeming qualities. They don't add anything to the story, and they will confuse the shit right out of you as far as continuity. Now, this movie does have some continuity issues. If you really pay attention to the dialogue and really try to match it up with the first movie, it does have a few continuity issues, but I like this one. To me, to, in my own personal ape universe... <laughs> there's Plan there's Planet of the Apes and there's this one. I skip right over the middle one, and, and for several reasons. For one, Charlton Heston didn't want to do didn't want to do a sequel, and and if you watch the second movie, you can tell he didn't want to do a sequel. He's in it, but he's in it at the very beginning and he's in it at the very very end. And the reason was was that that was all he agreed to do. He said, "I will show my face, and that's it. I don't even want to do this damn movie." So that's why. So much of the movie, he's not in it. They they brought in another, I think it was Richard Chamberlain was in this, I forget. But anyway, second one, I really don't like it. I kind of dismiss it. And it's funny, a lot of people don't realize this one, or this fact. Roddy McDowell is not Cornelius in the second movie. It's actually another actor imitating Roddy McDowell. Uh. as It's not even him. But Roddy McDowell does come back for this movie. The basic premise, without giving too much away on this movie, is it's it's actually a reversal of the roles in the original Planet of the Apes. Now, for anybody that's not ever seen it, and I'd, I'd have a hard time believing nobody ever, or anybody out there hasn't seen it, but if you haven't seen the original Planet of the Apes, damn good movie. Basic premise is three astronauts from about the mid to late 1970s go off on one of the first, like, out of the solar system expeditions on this spaceship, right? And they go into like cryostasis, kind of like alien. They're brought out of cryostasis when they, or cryostasis rather, when they crash on a planet and they get out and they're looking for life on this planet and they've only got a certain amount of time to find it. They end up finding a society of talking monkeys, talking apes, a, a society of, of apes, a planet of the apes. And eventually, by the end of the movie, uh, Charlton Heston's pretty much the only one left. And it's it's the story of his survival as a human in this society. All right, and then you go to this one. This is the third movie, Escape From. 
starts off and the same ship from the first movie crash lands in you know off the beach in modern day america and the army comes out to investigate they want to know what's going on and they think it's taylor and his crew returned and the astronauts come out they take off their helmets and they're apes and it turns out that it's basically it's cornelius and zero who were the two apes that befriended charlton heston's character in the first movie and then this third ape guy and it's basically it's their story as three intelligent talking apes in our modern day and i say modern day this movie's set in the mid 70s or what well, you know it's made in the mid 70s it's their story is as out of time out of place talking ape characters in modern society rather than a modern man in a futuristic talking ape society so it's just a reversal but it, it it's it's funny it's intelligent and I think it's heartbreaking. I won't give away how it ends, but it ends on a very down note. It's very sad, and it, it's a it's a it's a very good science fiction tale. It, it's intelligently told. It's got a lot of little cameos by you know uh, like M. Emmett Walsh, who seemed to be in like every seventies movie, is in this movie. Um, I is it Ricardo Montalban? I was just gonna say, is is he in this one? Because I know he's carnival owner. Yeah, I know he's in the next one, but I think he's in this one too. Yeah, uh, Ricardo Montalban's in it. You know, Khan. Um, I know there's other people I'm forgetting. Just a really, it's a, oh, I know who it is. Uh, I I forget the actor's name, but the guy who played uh, uh, John Jacob Astor in Jim Cameron's Titanic is in it. He he plays kind of the evil. No, well, he's not evil, but like the misguided scientist guy. Um, the guy who played Commodore Decker in the Doomsday Machine episode of the classic Star Trek, he plays, I think he's the president, if I remember right, in this movie. It's been a little bit since I've seen it, but I really like this movie. I really recommend this movie. I've got one left on my list. Oh, okay. And that's it. Cool. And it's uh, 2007. Everybody's heard of it. It got good reviews. Um, it's by two directors that have done all their movies have done pretty well or very well and have a lot of acclaim and that's Quentin Tarantino and Robert Rodriguez and the movie's Grindhouse which was it was to basically to a double feature with a lot of uh previews made to look like old you know um 42nd Street New York City Grindhouse movies and movie previews and the first movie was called Planet Terror and was directed by Robert Rodriguez and it was a zombie movie, gory zombie movie. And the second movie was um, directed by Quentin Tarantino. And I can't remember the name of it off the top of my head, but it stars Kurt Russell and it's basically a stunt, uh, a live stunt dream. It's about a psycho killer with his uh, with his muscle car, played by Kurt Russell, hunting down women. In, in their cars and killing them and he runs into the wrong women they're, they're stunt actresses and it just becomes this big battle between two classic muscle cars and uh both, is it like Death Race or something like that is that the name of that one um I remember seeing the posters for this and thought it looked really cool but I just never got to the theater to see it I think it did have death in it but um Jeez, you know, the thing about this is, 
I'm going to tell people, you know, go out and see this movie. And, uh... And you should see it, but... the t It's too late. It tanked in the movie theaters for some reason. Nobody... There was a lot of, uh... A lot of anticipation. But, um... Nobody went to see it. And maybe they were waiting for it to come out. I don't understand, because Quentin Tarantino usually puts asses in the seats. But, um... <laughs> you know? And same with Robert Rodriguez. He's just basically, you know, he had this, has done the Spy Kids movies, which were successful, love him or hate him. Hate him but, uh... Um... Really, Quentin Tarantino has it gone wrong. Everybody loved, um... What was his last movie, uh... Kill Bill was very good, and um, it's it, it, the the real appeal, the biggest appeal of seeing this movie was seeing it on a big screen, because th th they filmed it as you would see it in an old crappy movie theater or in a in a um, drive-in. The, the film stock is wrecked, it's faded, it's, it's got scratches, the dialogue sometimes gets cut out. Sometimes, whenever anybody appears to be getting naked, all of a sudden it's seen missing, which is hilarious because in the old <laughs> days, you know, the, the guys who owned the, the theaters would cut out the naked scenes and, and keep them as, you know, they would cut out scenes that they liked. Death Proof, that was the name of the, the second movie, Death Proof. And, um... The first movie is just a pure... And, and they don't do anything to spoil the feel of it, you know? There isn't a part where they put in... Especially in the Robert Rodriguez one. It looks like it was filmed in the 70s. The actors are groomed like they are in the 70s. It's over the top. The gore is gorier than maybe in those days, but it works. And the music is, you know, bad synthesizer score. They really know... They're bad movies, but here's the thing. They know how to make good movies. So it's a good version of a bad movie. It has all the things that you love about bad movies. And none of the things that you really hate about it. That You know, because a lot of those Grindhouse movies were... The most exciting thing about them was the poster. And then the movie would be kind of boring, but it was just to get you in there. And the, the Quentin Tarantino one isn't the most exciting. It's not that fast-paced except for the very end where there's a car chase but it's that movie you know those movies that were basically fetish movies there was a whole and um, all the Smokey and the Bandit movies were you know really nice cars you know a car enthusiast loved these would love these movies like your dad would know what yeah. all the make and models of those cars yep. and, and, and Death Proof I don't know anything about cars but the two cars are just like you know, you could tell that they're classic muscle movie cars, and uh, the the whole chase scene is beautiful. And, and there's no CG. There's some CG in the first part, but it's done really seamlessly. And the first the first movie also has Tom Savini in a great comedic oh, I can. Gore, gore role in it. I I just I can't recommend it enough. But the time it's just unfortunate because seeing it in a theater was beautiful because and and the the previews that they showed in between were beautiful for terrible terrible previews for terrible movies they were hilarious and maybe it's because a lot of people the younger people don't remember 
that time period, so there's no nostalgia for it, but sitting in there and watching it, it was just beautiful. And after the first movie was done, I was like, wow, I've got my money's worth in spades. You know, this has delivered the gore, the, the laughs, the action, the zombies, everything, and unexpected things. And, um, and then there was a whole other movie after it. And in between it were about six previews, which they've cut out of the DVDs. The DVDs, you can't get it as a double feature. You have to get each movie. And uh. and they only only one of the trailers made it. And uh, that was one that Robert Rodriguez directed. But you can go on YouTube and see all the other... They, they put them all up when they were promoting the movie. So they're still up on YouTube, and you can see them, and they're classic. The guys who made Shaun of the Dead made one. Rob Zombie made one. It's just... It's 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 a beautiful it's a beautiful beautiful thing and it's a it's a treat to a bad movie and and movies I guess that you would um put that like the psychotronic film guide one of my it, it's a psychotronic movie it's a cult drive-in movie condensed and distilled into all that makes those things great and it really deserves. A lot more credit than it got and I think that's it for me I've got one more I'm gonna throw out there um, I hope I don't take any heat for this one kind of being off the beaten path uh, genre wise it, it really is not horror or, or sci-fi or anything I, I guess it be, best be described as uh, as a uh, as a docudrama I guess I, I'm not even sure what the category would be um, this is from uh, 2000. Um, it was called 13 Days. And uh, although it has Kevin Costner in it, hes I wouldn't say it's starring Kevin Costner. I think that may have been the problem with this movie, was that people not only didn't they know what the hell the movie was about, but the, the perception was that it was starring Kevin Costner. And this is at a time that when Kevin Costner was still box office poison. So I don't know if he still is or not, but he was for a while after he did, you know, like Waterworld and yeah. the post and shit like that. Um, essentially, this movie is the story of uh, of about a two week period, 13 days, really, in October of 1962 during the whole Cuban Missile Crisis. Oh, and I've heard about the, this. The tagline for this movie, you know, like Superman in the movie had, you know, you'll believe a man can fly. The tagline for this movie was, you'll never believe how close we came. And a lot of people that don't know much or don't know shit about American history don't know that America damn near went to nuclear war with oh, the yeah. USSR in 1962. And this is that story. And it's a great movie. It's, it will scare you with the fact of, you know, the world could have ended before most of probably, you know, I know before you and I and probably most of our listing audience was born, born, you know, and but it, it's just a really good, entertaining movie. It's, you know, there's no sci-fi elements. This is a true story. You know, of course, it's Hollywoodized, but it, it's just a really good movie. It's a really good, huh, I never knew that kind of movie. And, uh, you know, for somebody like me, you know, there's a lot of historical events that we've grown up and we hear about them. You know, we've heard about the Revolutionary War. You know, we've heard about the Civil War. We've heard about the Cuban Missile Crisis. You know, we've heard about, you know, whatever. But do you know it? 
You know, do you know the story? Do you know the characters involved? Do you know how, you know, one misstep in the world could be radically different than it is? To, I love shit like that. You know, I have a book called uh, called What If. You know, now any Marvel Comics fans out there know the comic series What If. You know, what if Spider-Man's uncle had lived or... You know, what if, uh, you know, the thing were bright orange or, or bright pink or, you know, all those. That's what this book was, is it was a story of, you know what, what if, uh, you know, what if man hadn't crossed across the uh, Trans-Siberian Bridge and, you know, shit like that. How different the world could be if one little linchpin of history was different. And that's what I like about this movie is it's that kind of scenario. You know, it's telling the story and you realize, God damn, you know, if, if that guy hadn't done that, this could have happened or the world could be like this today. And it's that kind of a movie. And I, I like that kind of thing. I, I like the, you know, the, the historical movies that, that have that element to them. Yeah. And uh, so I recommend it. I mean, you know, don't, don't avoid it just because Kevin Costner's in it. He's actually, you know, not important in the movie in it in a terribly big way. Um, the story follows president Kennedy, um, his brother, Robert, who was the, um, attorney, attorney general. general. And then this guy, um, that Kevin Costner plays. I forget his role. Honestly, I can't, he might be presidential advisor. I really don't remember the role or, you know, he's playing a real person, but I can't remember the guy's title, but he's basically a childhood friend of these two Kennedy brothers. So it's, it's the story of the three of them, and basically, how are they going to avoid nuclear war with the USSR? Damn good movie. And uh, just on a sidebar note, um, the score for this movie was written by Trevor Jones, who, if I remember, I'm pretty sure he's the one that did... Um, oh, damn it. What's the name of that, that Jim Henson movie? The Dark Crystal? Dark Crystal. I'm pretty sure he... Yeah, he scored The Dark Crystal... Now, his score for um, 13 Days, you know, it's kind of subdued, but it's got a couple real highlight moments. Now, anybody who's ever seen the fan film that you can you can see it on the Internet, or at least you used to be able to see it on the Internet, it was called Grayson. And it was a fan film that told the story of, you know, Batman's been killed. And an adult Robin basically has to go and, and avenge his, I guess, solve his murder and avenge. It was done as a trailer. It's not, it doesn't have a coherent story. It, it, it's, it's a couple minutes long, and it's done as a trailer for a movie called Grayson. But the movie, to my knowledge, has never been made. It was just done as a trailer. Anyway, if you remember the part of the trailer where Dick is training... And he's running through a, a park or a forest or whatever he's doing. And he, he climbs this tree and he throws a batarang and he jumps and he catches the batarang. The music that's that's pumping and playing underneath that part is from this movie. It's from 13 huh. Days. It's from one of the most exciting parts of this movie. And uh, I, I highly recommend it. I mean, if you like docudramas, especially this era, you know, if you've ever seen like uh, – the right stuff or, or something like that. It, it's in that kind of a vein and, uh, and I highly recommend it. Well, that's the end of our list of movies. It looks like we've blot on for quite a while. So I think we should do our TV shows as a, another episode. Maybe the next Do you have episode. any honorable mentions? Um, not off the top of my head. I mean, I have, I probably have thousands of honorable mentions. <laughs> I just don't have any written down. 
Cool. At the, at the let's time. Uh, let's yeah let's save our TV shows and uh, we can go ahead and make that next episode because we have run a little long in this one. As usual, <laughs> if there's one thing we can do well, it's blah blah blah. We can chat, baby. Yeah. Well, anything else to add? Uh, nope. Just another thanks to my roommate for letting me use her computer to record this, and uh, she's downstairs watching videos of on YouTube of cats snoring. There's a lot of them, surprisingly. Yeah, there's a lot of shit on YouTube. Yeah. It's a new um, new subgenre. Well, I guess that's the end of our episode. That's episode four of Two True Freaks. Um, again, I'm your co-freak, Scott Gardner. And I'm Chris Honeywell. And we'll see you next time when we'll actually still be freaks. 